Howdy, everybody. CJ here, hoping that you're doing all right in this new dark age, which seems to be ever darkening in which we find ourselves. And for this DHP episode, I'm very pleased to share with you a conversation I had a week and a half, a couple weeks ago, something like that, with Gregory Zink, who is the host of a really cool history podcast called Smoke-Filled Rooms. And this podcast hasn't been around terribly long, but it's already on my short list of history podcasts that I actually listen to. And Greg is a really cool guy, and we've become internet friends over the past several months. Haven't met him in person yet, and uh, he is up in Canada, but don't worry, he's one of the good Canadians. He's a Canadian who actually is a Ron Paul fan, so he's a good dude. And he has hopes and dreams to eventually leave the land of Trudeau and immigrate to Florida. So he might be a future Florida man. And I'm always happy to have cool people from other parts of the U.S. or even other countries move to Florida. It always sucks when sucky people move to Florida. But when somebody cool who actually values things like human liberty moves to Florida, I see it as just reinforcements to help the Republic of Florida man. And in this conversation, we're going to be talking mostly about the historical phenomenon of democide, when governments mass slaughter their own populations. Although naturally, we take various detours along the way in a fairly freewheeling conversation. But before I turn it over to my conversation with Greg, I have a couple of awesome individuals to thank for in the past few weeks chipping in to the Indiegogo campaign to keep the Dangerous History podcast afloat. So big thanks go to Andrew and to Robert. Thank you both very much for chipping in. I appreciate it very much. And of course, there will be a link to the Indiegogo campaign in the show notes so that you can chip in if you have not already and you are so inclined, as well as all of the other usual links to become a monthly supporter via Patreon or Subscribestar, etc. And also there'll be links there. Just as a reminder, you can get my Dangerous American History Bibliography, a list of over 150 books on various aspects of American history, recommended by me and organized by subtopic, most of them also with comments on the books by me. And you can get that for free just by signing up for my email list over at dangerousbib.com. That's the word dangerous and then bib.com. In addition to that, I also want to remind you that I do have a YouTube channel up and running now. It doesn't yet have a bunch of videos on it, but it does have a couple as of this recording, one of which is the video version of the conversation I'm about to share with you. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes as well so that you can subscribe to my YouTube channel if you have not already. And there will be much more to come on the YouTube channel as time goes on. So go ahead and subscribe to it now while you're thinking of it. Again, link in the show notes. So without further ado, here is my recent conversation with Gregory Zink of Smoke-Filled Rooms.
Okay, so I'm very happy to welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast, Greg Zink of the podcast Smoke-Filled Rooms. Uh, Greg, thanks for coming on with me today. Oh, absolutely, CJ. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, you know, and you were nice enough to have me on your show recently, and so um, more than happy to return the favor uh, because your your show has earned a very coveted honor, which is you, uh, even though your show has not been around all that long, you are on my short list of history podcasts that I actually listen to, which you, you may you. have heard me mention before elsewhere is not a very long list. I actually am not a fan of most history podcasts that are out there. Before we get going, there was an unanswered question from our last one that I actually researched and, and got a conclusive answer on. Remember, my son was asking you about uh, Woodrow Wilson's pet? Yes. Yeah. So I, I looked into it. He actually, if you go on the White House website, he had a, uh, a herd of sheep that he let loose on the White House lawn to help keep the grass in track. And his favorite was actually a goat he brought in named Old Ike. And he would actually be uh, mostly sustained on chewing tobacco leaves. So nice. So there you go. Yeah, it's like one of the least terrible things I've I've ever heard about Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> so there you go. He had a tobacco chewing goat. It's um, almost kind of charming. So um, you've put out a bunch of uh, interesting episodes and series so far on your show, uh, but one that really caught my attention um, because it dug into something that I've read up on before and thought about before this whole concept of democide i guess you you put out this episode i'm trying to remember maybe approximately a month ago does that sound about right yeah a little over um, a month yeah okay yeah and this is a concept that i very much agree with you that it needs to be more widely um known and understood and talked about because it brings together what are usually you know kind of portrayed as like these very distinct little silos different categories of uh mass death right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so we'll get into to that in in just a moment and 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 democide and what it means and um all that but first i just want to ask you uh could you give the short version of kind of your origin story you know whatever you want to share in terms of like your background and everything and how uh, you came to be doing smoke-filled rooms yeah, sure. I'll, I'll keep it short and sweet. So yeah, I'm, I'm a podcaster. Uh, I started a little over a year ago in the uh, in the throes of the COVID regime. I found myself wanting to do more than just the writing I was I was uh, contributing. I, I was writing for big league politics. Uh, I wrote for Polyquads. I wrote for Uncancelled.ca. Um, overwhelmingly about politics and international relations, but. Um, just the boredom of the COVID regime in Canada here. I am a Canadian, sadly. Sorry. Sorry for that. Um, <laughs> so I started, uh, yeah, my podcast called Smoke-Filled Rooms. It's a political true crime show. Uh, I do like storytelling uh, episodes. I did a seven-part miniseries on the Nuremberg trials. And that's just, just the boredom of the COVID regime got me into it. Uh, I have a background in political science. I have a BA from Athabasca University. And uh, about a decade ago, I ran for provincial parliament here in Ontario. And so I've always kind of been involved in politics. But again, because of what happened during the pandemic, 
I felt like I needed to do something more and to incorporate my more liberty centric ideas into a widely digestible true crime podcast storytelling show. So you are one of those unfortunately minority of Canadians who actually is a fan of things like individual freedom and rights and these sorts of things. Uh, and, I, and I, I meet both in person and online lots of the, like if I just based it on my, my anecdotal experience of Canadians that I tend to interact with, I'd be like, Oh yeah, there are a whole bunch of libertarians. It's like a giant New Hampshire up there. Um, but <laughs> You know, I, I know that's not that's unfortunately not the majority, but yeah, like the you know the Canadians I hear from who are fans of my show um, that I'm friends with social media online, you know they're great. You know, I occasionally uh, meet Canadians at some of the events I speak at and whatever like that. They're great. And I'm like, man, what if the whole if the whole country was was these sorts of people? Like, I'd be looking to move north. You know, um, I, I just at, at the Self Reliance Fest in Tennessee um, a week and a half ago. Uh, met a really cool uh, Canadian guy from, um, I think he was originally from, if I remember right, Nova Scotia, but now okay. lives uh, somewhere out West, I think in Alberta or something like that. But anyway, really cool guy. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so um, I, I want to let people know, like not everybody in, in, in your country is like down with Trudeau and uh, no, his I mean, sort of stuff. He, he lost the popular vote in the last two elections. I have to note that the conservatives won both times. Um, if we had an actual, proportional representation system or something like this, we would actually have conservative government an overwhelming majority of the time over the last 30 years. But because we have the first past the post in a parliamentary system, uh, we are stuck with the liberals a lot of times because they pick up all their votes from very dense uh, city centers. Mm -hmm. So anywhere around Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, uh, there's just as many seats, like parliamentary seats in those areas as there are in the vast swaths of, you know, what you guys would call flyover country. We have flyover country too. It's Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, where it's overwhelmingly conservatives and, and right-leaning, but because we don't have the numbers, we are stuck with Trudeau. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, uh, tragic. Although to be fair, it seems like most of your guys's conservative party are not uh, particularly impressive. They're at best comparable to our most centrist establishment Republicans. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd even go farther than that. They're, they're kind of like blue dog Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe in a strong social safety net. They're all for uh, socialized health care, socialized education, uh, giving out freebies via the income tax structure we have here. So their big thing is just trying to lower taxes and being tough on crime. That's usually mm. what their bugaboos are when elections come around. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the the Tories in uh, the UK, with perhaps it, the exception exactly. of the Thatcher era as an anomaly. But in general, their argument is like, we can run the you know welfare state a little bit more efficiently than the labor party can like that's their big you know rallying cry precisely Um, yeah yeah. we'll be slightly more competent at running big government okay (laughs) so um i want to talk to you about this idea of democide and your coverage of it and a whole bunch of stuff so 
as you mentioned um, in your episode, which everybody should definitely check out up to them, whether they want to pause this right now and go listen to your episode first or later, but either way, it'll be Mm -hmm. um, one of the links in the show notes. So um, the kind of key scholar in devising this concept is a guy named R.J. Rummel and Mm -hmm. his most famous book is death by government. And I have read this book. And I do own this book, but I will say it has been probably at least a decade since I read that book mm-hmm. and I was unable to dig it out. I've got so many piles and caverns and shelves and boxes of books at this point, especially, you know, ever since I uh, quit my teaching job, I, I, had a, I had a million books at home and a million books at my office at work. And so now I have 2 million books in my house. and some of them are sort of organized in a way and some of them aren't some of them are just jammed wherever i could find a spot so yeah i was unable to dig it up and you know kind of go back and and glance over some of it again um leading up to this conversation so anyway i'll give you the floor as far as just defining uh the term democide and what it means and you know, why it's important and maybe deserves to be better known than it is. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, before I even get into the definition of democide, like you were just mentioning, you couldn't find your copy out of the sheer generosity from the university of Hawaii, where is where professor RJ Rummel, the guy that we're going to be discussing his ideas. uh, That's where he was teaching at. And that's, that was his home base. Um, If you go to their website, uh, they have, amazing amounts of his work published for free that you can download from PDFs and stuff. So I believe they even have power kills as a free PDF there. Uh, I I would strongly encourage any of your listeners to go there and download as much as you can. It's even kind of a very cool website setup. It looks very much like a a late nineties, early two thousands kind of (laughs) presentation of a website, but that aside. um, Okay. So Defining democide, if you don't, if you'll just indulge me for a second, um, I'd kind of like to just quote Rummel himself so that we don't get any of these things uh, confused. So Rummel defined democide as uh, not limited to the killing component of genocide, politicide, massacre, or terror. It includes all of these things and also what they exclude. As long as such killing is a purposeful act, policy, process, or institution of the state. Therefore, democide is any action taken by government that kills or causes the death of people because of their immutable characteristics in order to fulfill a quota or requisition system in furtherance of a system of forced labor or enslavement by straight up massacre through the imposition of lethal living conditions by direct targeting of non-combatants during a war. And democide is also that which causes death by virtue of an intentionally or knowingly reckless and depraved disregard for human life, as in deadly prisons, killing killing through medical or scientific experiments, torture or beatings, encouraged or condoned murder or rape, Uh, a famine or epidemic during which government authorities withhold aid or knowingly act in a way to make it more deadly, uh, 
or finally to forced deportations and expulsions causing death. So that is what Rummel defines as democide. It includes all those things. Uh, as to why this is important, uh, I feel like this is very important because it's it especially for people like us in the liberty community this makes the important connection between governmental power and the death that it inevitably causes and rummel's his main finding throughout the entire the entirety of his three decades of research was that the more power a government has the more it is inclined to kill its own citizens and actually he has a very a, a quick quote he has on that is Quote, uh, the less freedom people have, the greater the violence. The more freedom, the less violence. So he offers this prop proposition. Power kills and absolute power kills absolutely. And we need to realize this connection because if we see the way the world is going right now, and I don't want to get conspiratorial or anything, but... If you look at the way that the American empire is headed, and maybe you could speak to this probably better than I could because of your collapse of empires uh, teachings. When empires collapse, it seems to me that they it can lead to some really dark places really quick, especially when you realize the troops are starting to come home, the wars are failing, the, uh, the petrodollar is starting to get decoupled, and the the domestic the the war on terror is starting to be turned inwards towards American citizens. When you add all these things together, we really need to make a strong push so that people understand what democide is, so that you can conceptualize it properly, utilize it properly, and make this this like abundantly obvious but needs to be said out loud connection between governmental power and the evils that flow from it. Yeah, and I, I very much agree. Um, you know, I, I have various disagreements with Rummel on some things, as I know you do as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think in a lot of his kind of big picture arguments and things, um, mostly I agree with him, particularly that claim that power kills, um, you know, because I'm familiar with the history and even the science now mm -hmm. that backs up this idea that power tends to corrupt and that the more power you have, the more addicting it gets, the more power you want, the longer you have power, the more it corrodes your ethics and morality. If you're not already a psychopath or something. Yep. Um, and then if you have these institutions that have so much power vested in them, those are like, it's, it's like a, a barrel full of stale donuts to a bear, you know, as far as yep. a, a, a metaphor that, you know, might resonate with Canadians as well as Americans from places like Maine or Minnesota um, that, you know, the saying, I always remember it from the TV show Vikings, but I don't know if it comes from somewhere further back, the saying that power um, attracts the worst and corrupts the best. So it, it attracts those who already are, you know, evil, corrupt, psychopathic, whatever. They're going to be the ones most drawn to it. Like, like, you know, crackhead to crack, like Hunter Biden to a giant thing, a crack. Um, and, and then also that even people who start off, maybe not being totally evil, um, if they have power, the more of it they have and the longer they have it, the more it, it will kind of tend to degrade them. They'll, 
yeah. start inventing justifications and justify the means rationales and whatever. And well, this brings up a good point because a lot of people would, I, I, I this is why I want to more popularize the term democide because there's a lot of other terms that people would probably just naturally associate with democidal regimes. Like they would probably take homicide, infanticide, ethnocide, politicide, um, genocide. They they would usually attribute those terms to the worst democidal maniacs that we know throughout history, but they don't accurately make that link between the rationale for those mass killings. Like if we take, for example, Hitler and the Nazis. Now, I would put almost everything he did as democide, even though a lot of people would put almost everything that he did under genocide, right? Which was, I'm not discounting the reality of the genocide. He did genocide the Jewish people, right? But this doesn't account for why he did it. Yeah, he did hate the Jews. And I'm pretty sure if he could push a button and could have eliminated all the Jewry worldwide, he would have done that. But that doesn't explain why he did it. Now, if, why did he do it? Okay, well, as I'm sure you you know, uh, his rationale stemmed from World War One, where he subscribed to the stab in the back theory, where the Jews apparently threw the war and gave up on, on their in- inevitable victory. And so he blamed them for the war. He blamed them for the cultural degeneracy that happened throughout the Weimar Republic. And then for all these kind of uh, conspiratorial um predatory banking practices and and economic rigging of the system but and so yeah he did genocide the jews because of those reasons but his reason mainly was out of state authority and state power he wanted them to be out of the way so that he could make the aryan state it was completely in service of his agenda as a government it wasn't purely out of the hatred for the jews which again, he obviously had, but getting them out of the way was in service of ushering in the Aryan utopia. And that's why democide, I feel, is a more applicable term to what he did. Yeah. And it also, it encompasses all of the, the state caused mass murders of which genocide is obviously a major subgenre, sure. but is not the entirety. And I've often kind of wondered as to why genocide often gets like put on this special pedestal as this like allegedly unique, particularly egregious thing. Whereas there, there have been democides throughout history. Yes. Many of them have a, you know, ethnic hatred, motivation in terms mm-hmm. of selecting the victims and justifying the actions but many of them have other you know criteria and other justifications and so it's it's always kind of bothered me as a you know an annoying autistic libertarian who doesn't like um inexplicable double standards that people just accept without critical questioning that like if one regime kills a million people because of their ethnicity and another regime kills a million people for some other criteria, whether it's socioeconomic class, 
whether it's their political opinions, whether it's yeah. something else, you know, yeah. um, how is it, how is one better or worse than the other? It seems to me like they're okay. equivalent. I haven't, I haven't, I, I morally, I a hundred percent agree. I like to people, you're right to people like, like artists like us who need an exact answer about these things. I would almost be, I haven't thought about this deeply. I, I kind of want to do an addendum episode to my democide episode where maybe I can explore this, but just off the top of my head, um, I think there's some sort of intrinsic revulsion that people have towards killing people based on immutable characteristics, like say in, in the, in the term of genocide, uh, their race. Um, and in this new, uh, democratic like i guess in post-world war ii uh this push to have uh liberal democracy the be-all and end-all of all political systems where all these things aren't supposed to matter it's especially egregious to people in from post-world war on to consider the killings of people like that they, they would view them as worse because it's a fundamental breach of human rights and killing people based on that whereas Democide, like uh, say uh, the you know the millions that were killed in the Soviet Union over the course of the 20th century, at least those, and I'm not justifying it in the slightest, but I'm just saying those people could at least push point towards this idea that well we were doing it for the greater good, we were doing it for something more than ourselves. So if there's people getting in the way that we have to democide, at least we're doing it for something higher. Whereas the, the the more genocidal regimes, they're they're just doing it straight out of maybe hatred. That's a component of it. Mm. Whereas Stalin didn't have hatred for these people; he just mm. they were in the way. Oh, okay, yeah, that's that's interesting, and I and I get that. Like you're not endorsed. You're trying to explain sort of the argument that somebody I, exactly believe yeah. that that. Um, yeah, I want to make very clear I'm anti-democide. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're not you're not endorsing this not as a justification, but just trying yeah. to to explain. I mean, that's what they would say, I believe. And even yeah. in my episode, I did the example of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. If you had to steel man the Cultural Revolution, what would they say? Mm-hmm. And I laid out all the points that they would make about how it it improved the education system and it made society more equal and. It, it got it, it made everyone read off of the same hymn, hymn book, you know, uh, mm. to them. If you believed in the Chinese Communist Party, then that would be a net good in the long run. If it got mm. more people boosted out of poverty, if it got more people educated. So to them, I, I feel like it's, you know, it's cracking an egg to make an omelet. That's what they would say. Yeah, yeah, that getting into ends justify the means and, mm-hmm. you know, excusing crimes if they are allegedly done for good intentions, right? So exactly. if if you've got a compelling enough sounding utopian fairy tale endpoint, then even if the things you do are objectively evil and immoral, mm-hmm. you can still maybe get a little bit of well, they meant well. They just made some mistakes in terms of, in terms of uh, selecting their means. Absolutely, but, and um, you know, I, just a very small micro example of this is: I, I went to China about uh, seven years ago, and one of my souvenirs I brought back was the classic Chinese green communist hat with the red star on it. That was mm-hmm. one of the souvenirs I picked up, and just for a larf one day, I wore it to work. Right. I work in kind of a blue collar setting, but I wore it to work one day just as a LARF to see what people would say. 
And a lot of people came up to me and said like, wow, that's really cool. Where'd you get that? Can I get one? And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, wow, like you don't even really care that this represents millions, like, sorry, hundreds of millions of deaths. Whereas if I wore a Nazi cap to work, you know, I'm booted out of the building immediately. I'm, I'm immediately (laughs) removed and, you know, fired. Yeah, exactly. It's strange to me. Yeah, I I don't get it either. But (laughs) yeah, it's it's the same thing as, you know, at most schools anyway, um, you know, a college student shows up to class with a Che Guevara shirt. Precisely. And almost nobody uh, thinks twice about it. Uh, They might even think, oh, what a cool counterculture, you know, whatever. Um, Whereas if you showed up with a T-shirt of, I don't know, Eichmann or something, um, maybe not as many people recognize who it was anyway, but but those who did they certainly would make a much bigger uh, fuss about it. Absolutely. Um, they would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, a well, couple, couple of things on, on sort of um, some of the, the previous uh, stuff you said, one is you brought up this idea of immutable characteristics and I, and I get what you mean that that seems like um, at least to, to people who haven't thought this through mm-hmm. uh, to the degree that someone like you has, that seems like a plausible, like, oh, this is a next level of evil, that if your criteria is based on immutable characteristics, mm-hmm. it's somehow morally worse than if you're mass slaughtering people for things that you could argue at least were more kind of like chosen by them, uh, yeah. even if they maybe didn't deserve the death penalty for it. Like, yeah. but, but then, you know, my counter to that, and, and you probably would be sympathetic to this, would be um, aren't we getting into victim blaming then if we say, well, someone who gets slaughtered because of their ethnicity that they were born with or something like this, they had, they couldn't change that. Whereas someone who is of the wrong ideology and gets slaughtered for that, or somebody who is of the wrong economic category and gets slaughtered, mm-hmm. or, you know, some other thing, um, the, then that's, you know, well, Theoretically, they could have chosen to not be part of the bourgeoisie or they could have chosen to not be of, a you know, ideology that went against the ruling regime or whatever. Um, but then, you know, my counter to that, and, and I would suspect you're, you'd be sympathetic to this counter would be you're victim blaming. You're, you're saying essentially like, well, you should have just conformed to the, the ideology and maybe you wouldn't have ended up in the gulag, which historically lots of people ended up in the gulag that didn't even really, you know, weren't even really dissenters or rebels or whatever, but were just accused of that. Yeah. Um, but even of the people who were genuine dissenters, are, are we now endorsing that, 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 that it's their fault that if someone gets democided uh, for their political uh, beliefs, that that's somehow on some level their fault because they could have chosen to, you know, believe something different or feigned that they believe something different. Um, I, but- I, I agree. You're right. They absolutely, they, they could, and I, they could just say whatever the regime wanted them to say, and they could secretly say other things to their family and close friends. Even that I guess is somewhat dangerous if you're in a place like North Korea, but I, I completely agree with what you said. Uh I don't think there's any good way to convince people of the 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 equal amount of evil in both instances besides trying to instill this idea that we're talking about right now in getting people to conceptualize the crimes differently than we are at the current moment because like I've said in my episode about this as well uh, the understanding as government, the understanding of government as being this benevolent paternalistic figure 
that's always trying to do the right thing on behalf of the people. This is part of the problem that you're kind of talking about right now. The the sheer understanding that most people have of that being the reality is where a lot of democide is allowed to blossom from. Yeah. And when I'm thinking about these sorts of questions, I do often kind of reduce it down to a small like individual versus individual example to try and figure out what's really going on as far as the morality of a situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's it's very easy and people who run states rely on this, that it's it's very easy to obscure the reality and the morality of what's going on somewhere when you're talking about big things like nations and armies and millions of people and whatever. Whereas if you reduce it down to a small like anecdote of like one individual versus another, it's very easy to see like, oh, this person's doing something horrifically evil. Um, you know, like, like if I have a boundary dispute with my neighbor as to where's the property line mm-hmm. and I decide to just preemptively bomb his house yeah. um, when it's individual versus individual, like nobody is going to say, oh, well, you know, it was justified because you were looking after your self-interest or whatever um whereas if it's a nation you know people suddenly it all of it gets murky and oh well you know there's geopolitical factors and you know and, and suddenly um it becomes foreign policy instead of you know attempted murder yeah i um, mean i i kind of brought this up briefly with uh alex von sternberg on my episode that i did with him about the uh the ted kaczynski manifesto Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a reading of that and then him and I uh, had a conversation about it. And I brought up that kind of idea as a point where uh, Ted Kaczynski, obviously, I, I don't condone anything he ever did. Uh, he killed, I think it was seven people altogether, tried to kill, you know, several hundreds, but only actually killed about seven. And uh, I, I juxtaposed that against someone like we talked about in our in our our conversation bush who willfully killed a million iraqis and there's this strange situation where if you if you uphold the uh philosophy of of ted kaczynski in his manifesto you know you're a you're a kook and a monster but if you uphold the ideology of george bush well you're just you're just indulging in some sort of rational statecraft Mm-hmm. that is a major problem. And again, it gets back to the morality question that you posed. But again, like Alex said in that episode, the difference is that one has the, the justification and authority of the state behind it, the other does not. And again, we get back to why is democide such an important term? It's because it comes from the state in service of state power. Mm-hmm. And um, as you talked about i think at the very beginning or towards the beginning of your democide episode the famous stalin quote of one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is just a statistic And and i think that's a brilliant illustration of this whole phenomenon that people get morality easily obscured when it's on a large enough scale so Mm -hmm. that imagine if it came out that george w bush had dispatched i don't know like a cia assassin to just flat out murder one of his political opponents in the United States. Imagine if, if it came out like ironclad smoking gun, absolute documentary proof Mm -hmm. that he did that. I bet you there would be a lot more outcry and Mm -hmm. calls for him to face justice than the thing that we all know about, which is that he launched a war that killed minimum hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, likely into the millions. If you calculate it holistically. Yeah. 
Um, and then that can be like something that respectable people can have, you know, a civilized disagreement over whether that was, you know, right or wrong, justified or not. Whereas if he sent an assassin to kill one guy, you know, Khashoggi style, um, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. would be like, oh, my God, what an evil, horrific monster. Right. So, yeah, if you do homicide on a Ted Kaczynski scale, we can easily call you a terrorist and maybe justifiably so. But if you're dropping bombs on on cities, if you're napalming villages in Vietnam, if you're launching a war based on lies in Iraq that makes Ted Kaczynski look like a complete joke of an amateur at, yeah. at homicide, um, suddenly it's a different moral category. But the, w- one thing that, that occurred to me in, in regard to this whole idea that like genocide is this special thing yeah. that, that needs to be you know treated as like more evil than other types of democide. Um, it reminds me of the whole concept of hate crimes, which, you know, again, as an autistic libertarian who's inherently not willing to go along with um, irrational double standards mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, the whole concept of hate crime has never uh, made sense to me or been justified because to me, it's like, you know, if my neighbor is a different ethnicity than me, yeah, and one day I murder him, yeah, should it be seen as and treated as a worse crime if if I explicitly make clear that my motivation for murdering him was because of his ethnicity mm-hmm. versus if my motivation was I'm just a crazy you know, serial killer who gets off on killing people. And he just happened to be the target that, you know, the closest victim that day, if it happened to be that I'm killing him because I want to steal his stuff. And this is a good way to get him out of the way. If I kill him, if I'm killing him because we have a personal beef and I just hate him personally, regardless of his, like the whole idea that I would, I would face, I don't know, uh, stiffer punishment and more public approbation or opprobium or whatever is the word that means, you know, everybody hates you. Um, if I made it clear, like I killed him because he's ethnicity X versus I killed him because I didn't like him as an individual because I wanted his money because I just felt yep. like killing somebody like. I don't I, know. I and, and to me, treating treating genocide in that way is the same sort of thing where it's like you're you're making a moral distinction that I don't feel is justified by an actual difference. I agree. And OK, so uh, in regards to the hate crime thing, um, you're right, because. To people like us, people who have a balanced sense of morality, I think that we think a killing is a killing is a killing. It doesn't matter what your reason is. No one has the right to violate the non-aggression principle and kill another human, regardless of what your rationale is. I even apply that to the state. I don't condone any sort of uh, state executions for capital crimes. I, I don't think that that should be a thing that governments are allowed to do since individuals are not allowed to do it either. Uh, but let's look at who installs hate crime laws and why do they install them? Well, it's overwhelmingly the political class for the benefit of their grandstanding. It seems like then they can stand up on a stage and say, oh, I'm the, I'm the nice guy who's trying to protect minorities and trying to make sure that these evil people get even more punishment than a normal murderer would. Because they did a hate crime and, you know, they can run on it, they can fundraise on it, and then they can be the the great moral heroes of liberal democracy. I think Mm -hmm. that's the only reason why there are such things as hate crimes. Maybe at one point in time, it was noted specifically for racial tensions that were more apparent, like maybe back 
like I, you guys don't have them there in, in, in the U.S., right? Or do, do certain jurisdictions have them? We have it here in Canada, but do you guys have them? Um, yeah, my understanding is uh, that there are uh, hate crime laws in, in many jurisdictions. Okay. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, exactly what all that is in terms of the federal level. I don't know to what degree. Would you, I, I, would you be surprised at all if a lot of these laws came to be in the aftermath of the civil rights era? Um, I think, as far as I know, they're much more of much more recent vintage, right? So, oh, okay. Even um, newer. Okay. It, it almost would have been more understandable if these laws had come into being in say the 1950s and even into the 60s when you could at least make an argument that you know the state and local authorities let's say in you know a place like alabama mm-hmm. are not taking seriously lynching of, of black yeah, citizens yeah, right? bombing yeah. of black churches by Klansmen, yeah. those sorts of things and that there is a necessity for some sort of you know, tool for the feds to come in because those people's rights are not being properly uh, protected by their state and local authority. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we need, you know, an extra safeguard of, of certain crimes to deal with that. But my understanding, unless I'm, I'm wrong about this, is that uh, whatever hate crimes laws exist in the United States, I, I think I think the majority of them are not much more than 20 years old, maybe. Okay. Um, no, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong about that, I'm wrong about that. But that's that's my perception. I don't I don't remember even hearing about hate crimes as a thing in this country um, until maybe the mid to late 1990s. Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm I'm not going to go out on a limb and talk about things I don't really know about. I haven't investigated hate crimes laws, but again, it wouldn't be surprising to me if it was overwhelmingly leftist politicians that were pushing it. No, that's for sure. Yeah, specifically for the goal of making themselves out to be the moral messiah mm-hmm. and to, you know, grandstand and uh, accumulate minority votes off of uh, something that, like we just discussed, doesn't mean a whole lot when you look at it from an objective morality perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me, you know, if I'm correct that most of the hate crimes laws in the U.S. are 20 years old at most, mm-hmm. Um then in that case, it also is to some degree like a deliberately cultivated um, moral panic yep. where like you're not passing it when there's like still tons of lynchings and tons of bombing of black churches and that sort of thing. When it really like there was some justification for it, um, you're doing it at a time when all those things are like hardly ever happen anymore. Yep. Um, and when they do, usually there is a big, you know, law enforcement response um you know i mean when's the last time you heard about a black person being lynched in the united states purposeful lynching no yeah like an actual like a bunch of clansmen or whatever you know grab a black person and lynch them well i'm Uh, sure like we like we've seen over the last couple of years like the blm activists they're not uh shy from uh accusing cops of doing these things right mm. like it's almost like an intentional going out to lynch black people type of scenario. Right. Right. And then again, I, I can, I can just imagine leftist politicians wanting to up the hate crimes laws or whatever they, they, they can attach for their own personal glory and benefit of the system more generally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And manipulating perception to make people believe again, classic, you know, um, like deliberately instigated moral panic where yeah. you're, you're talking about a problem that 
either does doesn't exist or does exist, but on a very, very small scale and is, you know, much better than it used to be in previous eras. But you're creating the perception amongst people that like it's a serious deal like that, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, black people just walking down the street, minding their own business or just, you know, um, getting shot drive by style by cops or targeted targeted yeah lynched yeah Yeah. you know the thing things like the you know the the alleged trans genocide that's happening and you know but they never seem to point to any hard data because it wouldn't support their narrative exactly um yeah it's it's, it's like the satanic panic or or any other um Mm -hmm. uh, anyway so getting um back to the kind of uh, big picture on democide a little bit um you mentioned the importance of political socialization um to kind of maybe laying the groundwork or or creating the conditions under which people are willing to go along with this and Mm -hmm. maybe excuse it after the fact so could you explain that a little bit and um one thing it made me think of when I was re-listening to your episode earlier this morning uh, is the whole idea of civil religion, which, yep. you know, I've talked about in different ways on my show before. So could you just dig into the important role of political socialization? And then what, if any, you think about this whole concept of civil religion and how it might also uh, play into democides de- occurring and being excused away? Sure. Okay, so this is another term, like you just mentioned, political socialization. This is another term that uh, I I learned during my studies in my program. Uh, It's not widely known, but it is a reality that everyone, regardless of whether you are the most ANCAP libertarian or the communist of commies, you have inculcated um, values that your society instills into you. And uh, so political socialization is the process by which an individual becomes intrinsically identifiable with the political culture around them. And that's, uh, it, it's, it's instilled into people through things like the education system, the media, uh, your, de- your, your political order, and how you're expected to act within that framework. So a very basic kind of, like you were just mentioning, civil religion kind of idea would be uh, doing the national anthem at your school before class starts every day for a child. Uh, This kind of, this idea would make you politically socialized to understand that the flag is our most important symbol. We all uh, adhere and try and uphold the laws and values of our uh, demarcated political area, and that we all more or less subscribe to the same ideals about what we're doing in society and where we want to go. So, and and well, yeah, this, this is a civil religion to me. And in the episode, I use the example of again, sorry, the national anthem uh, during a sports game. Uh, I, I'm a big sports fan, and it's always this bizarre, anachronistic thing to me when I go to a sporting event and they everyone rise for the national anthem. And you're expected to stand up, take off your hat, look at the flag, hand over heart, and kind of just sit there and take it in as like this is an un uh, th- this is an un uh, uncontroversially great example of unity and 
uh, civil excellence and 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 uh, conformity. Um, I'm sitting there thinking, but what if what if you just sat down during that? People around you are going to look at you. People around you might even say something. They might say, stand up or take off your hat, or it would be an excuse for people to enforce social norms on you. So again, political socialization, is this uh, in practice uh, what you're told to believe and how that plays out in day-to-day life when you interact with society and the state? How... Trying to think how to how to string this question together. Um, the what really do you think is driving a democide when it occurs? Um, do you think there's ever like one? Obviously, each instance is different in terms of its details, but is there like one common factor? that's behind all the major democides like like one you know x factor that regardless of whether it's coming from the left the right of ethnic you know motivations or not um that seems to unite them like is there is there always something like a utopian narrative and justification or is there not because like one of the things that I, I think a lot of people who haven't really uh studied history in depth they seem to think and they I, I guess they get this from the kind of popular narratives that that evil people and evil regimes generally think of themselves as evil and i don't think that's the case <laughs> hardly ever yeah, um yeah. are we the baddies right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and so I think that's part of why some people will make this distinction between, say, the democides of Joseph Stalin and the democides of Adolf Hitler is they, they think that like Hitler and his cronies were sitting around going like, oh, yeah, we're all the bad guys. We're evil. So let's go do mm-hmm. some evil stuff just because we're evil and we hate people. Whereas Stalin had all these great intentions to create a workers paradise utopia. And unfortunately, it went a little off the rails, got a little out of hand in terms of some of the means. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he meant well. And, and I think, you no, I think you, I think you nailed it exactly with, I even mentioned the word that you just mentioned in my episode of utopianism is this kind of founding ideal within any kind of democidal regime. Uh, and that, that correlates positively with both, both their need to um, accumulate and centralize power and to further the aims of so further the agenda of the given regime. Uh, they all have to have some sort of grand plan to justify all these radical actions that they have. And the only way to, the, and, and this is the important part again for everyone to realize, is that the only way that democides take place is under a government. They're not under, like Adolf Hitler yelling in the Munich city center doesn't kill one person because no one's listening to him. He uses the authority and alleged legitimacy of the state to further his agenda in service of the state, to, in, in perpetuity. Um, so, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Utopianism is the core ideal. And this is what's troubling to people like us who tend towards a more anarchist or, or libertarian perspective is that we know precisely the, the direction these things go in, especially like all the work that you've done with progressivism and Woodrow Wilson, 
the lo- we we can take the logical con- we're starting to see the logical conclusions of uh, progressive socialized medicine here in Canada, where if you take it to its logical conclusion, well, you guess what? Utilitarianism kicks in, and you're going to have to start offing people for the benefit of the system. We have this thing here called the MAID program, right? Uh, people who in, the, in your audience who might not know. Uh, it's a medically assisted uh, medically assisted death program that the Canadian government instituted a few years back, and it's actually one of the top ten leading causes of death in Canada now. Uh, so it seems like the more strain the system, our, our healthcare system comes under, the more that this is being offered as a solution to people with uh, medical problems and even in some instances uh, mental issues. Mm-hmm. This is being offered as a solution to their problems. So again, we can see the utopianism of in this program of, well, healthcare is important. Everyone should have access to it. And if you follow that to its natural conclusion, well, there's a lot of people that maybe just they're, they're kind of useless eaters. Maybe Mm -hmm. we should extend this out further and protect the people, protect the system. And that's, again, that's where the utopianism comes into play. Yeah, um, I read some stuff and I wish I could remember the details of it, but I remember that I I believe it was in my um, research seminar class that I took when I was in graduate school, which was on uh, modern propaganda. Mm -hmm. And we read several different books on it um, while simultaneously all each doing our individual um, research projects. And I believe it was in that class that we read, I, I think it was some sort of a scholarly article. It was about the fact that the Nazis actually did have a utopian narrative to oh, absolutely their, they did. Yeah. which, which people don't seem to to realize today. And again, I think they're largely, kind of led astray from realizing this by mm-hmm. the, by the popular portrayal of the nazis where they they think it's just like you know it, it, nazism was was just about people sitting around going like ah we're we're bad and we hate people and let's go kill them yeah. and you know can that really explain you know tens of millions of people in a educated you know first world nation lining up behind this regime and this ideology that if that's all you have is like this explicit, we're bad, let's go kill people. Um, but they had, they had a whole, it, it was not always as like systematically laid out as say the Marxist, you know, utopian. No, but, narrative, I, but, no, but it sorry, was there. To quickly interrupt. Yeah. They, they had one of their founding concepts was Lebensraum, right? Mm-hmm. Acquiring more land for the, for the, the German people to expand uh, eastwards and westwards and to make like you said, this utopian idea of like these blonde haired farmers kind of uh, pastoral kind of idea, these blonde haired farmers just occupying the totality of Europe and letting the Aryan race flourish for the betterment of the Aryan people. That was the utopian ideal that they would kind of pass down in their propaganda and their the, the mythology, the Aryan mythology. So, yeah, absolutely. There was a there was a utopian idealism to it. Yeah. And something that people, um, you know, again, average people who haven't really delved into these sorts of things very much, they, they seem to think that, you know, dictators, authoritarian regimes, totalitarian regimes, and, you know, we can get into in a minute, those, those Mm -hmm. important distinctions, which is part of the whole, um, 
you know, ball of wax of democides, but um, they, I think average people walking around in a country like the U S or a country like Canada or most kind of, you know, first world countries, they think that when a dictator takes over or when a regime goes, you know, hard authoritarian or, or what have you, they seem to believe that the regime is going to like kind of say, yes, we're taking away your rights because we've decided to be mean and oppressive now. And we would like to exploit you and control you more effectively. When in reality, there's always a justification, you know, every dictator who takes over and, you know, suspends free speech or seizes control of all aspects of it. They always say it's for your own good. It's to protect you from, you know, scary, bad people out there um well absolutely even even hitler he's he justified the invasion of of poland in in danzig over the idea that there was uh there was german uh poles that were being oppressed in the in in that area right and the uh the japanese when they invaded manchuria they were saying they were going over to liberate it from chinese bandits Mm -hmm. this was they didn't want to do it they had to Mm -hmm. right (laughs) Yeah, and it's and only it's, the authority of their state could make things better and create a, a more a prosperous living space for everyone that was involved in the project, right? Yeah, yeah, and at least in recent history, you know, might might be different if you go back to like Genghis Khan's day when rulers would sometimes just be more honest about things. But <laughs> yes. um, and even Genghis Khan though thought he had like the mandate of heaven and was you know spreading a somewhat benevolent system. Um, but you know most regimes when they're going to war externally claim to be doing it defensively whether even if they even if they're doing it clearly preemptively they'll claim like oh but it's because those people we know are about to attack us so we have to you know everyone always claims they're they're the victim and they're the defender and it's the same thing when it comes to domestic policies even including up to the extreme uh, measure of democide where you know the the regime is always going to say that we're doing this because we have to, mm-hmm. we're, we're taking away your rights, but it's to protect you and to keep you safe. And, um, and this is kind of where I get into the, the, I did a little subtopic in the episode about why isn't democide a more popular or utilized word. Now, to me, it's, I, I don't know if it's a direct, uh, Again, I, I don't know if it's because people are directly ignoring it, that they that people that could uh, note it in, in, in positions of power like academia and the media, like they know of it, but they're not using it. But again, like just to take a step back, we're living in a state centric order globally. I, I kind of subscribe to, to, to realism when it comes to international relations. So we're in this anarchical state system. The state is the highest authority on the planet for each individual nation. And what, and, and because of what I just said about political socialization, why isn't the term democide a more utilized tool? Well, to me, and again, I'm not being conspiratorial, but it seems like there is this focus on genocide as opposed to democide, because you can make a, you can make a lot more evilness. You can put a lot more evilness and make political hate out of something like that than you can on democide, because what democide ultimately reveals is that the only mechanism to enact these unequivocally evil things is state power. And you don't want people thinking about these things in terms of state power. You want them thinking about it in terms of evil men 
or evil intentions, not the underlying mechanism that permits these things to even occur. Because again, Hitler just yelling in the Munich city center is a lot different than him yelling from the podium of the Reichstag. There's a Mm -hmm. huge difference there. One gets a certain amount of legitimacy and authority that can give him the power to usher in untold evil. And there is nothing else on planet earth that can usher in total evil, like, like a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao, like state power. There's just nothing else that can even come close. Mm-hmm. And that's why I want to popularize this term again and get people even, you know, I'm even in favor of throwing this term at the wall at everything, just so that a, it gets out there and people will hear it and maybe discuss it, maybe look into it, but also make like one of the founding aspects of, uh, of being someone on the, on, on like anarchist thought or libertarian is that, uh, power should actively be questioned or accused and make itself, make it justify itself to us, Mm -hmm. not just taking it for granted that they're authoritative and legitimate they need to constantly justify this power or else we should be actively dismantling it now i want everyone to throw the term democide at as much as they possibly can so that more people hear it more people talk about it more people look into it and make them go on the defensive make them have to justify everything in terms of credibility and legitimacy as opposed to just like we've been talking about take it for granted that what they're doing must be with the best of intentions because that's why we put them there. They're just, they're just the people that are trying to help us. They're not trying to hurt people. Well, guess what? Rummel's evident Rummel's studies over three decades prove these people are in the, in the game of enacting their agendas at all costs. So we need to make them constantly legitimize what they're saying and doing or else we need to stop them. Yeah, it seems to me that this, you know, tendency to just sort of fixate on genocide in general as this like unique thing and then to, um, you know, at least in countries like ours and, and much of the kind of Western first world to sort of focus on and portray the Nazis as like this singular mm-hmm. you know, thing. It, it's a it's a version of like the a few bad apples narrative it's it's the same thing i see in the u.s in both popular and allegedly scholarly discourse about um presidents where generally you're going to be given the impression that most presidents are at least decent and at least mean well they're not always you know up to the job or whatever and they make mistakes but like most of them generally are mostly benevolent and some of them are wonderful heroes Weirdly, those are always the ones with the largest body counts and civil liberties <laughs> violations, but whatever. Yep. And, um, you know, typically they'll, they'll point to like a handful, oftentimes, like you can count them on one hand with fingers left over. And in particular, um, for the last 50 years, it's been like Nixon. Nixon is treated as like, he's this one, you know, and then Trump came along and became like the second, you know, horrific, like all the presidents were decent guys, you know, Harry Truman, you know, the nuker of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is a great guy. Franklin Roosevelt, great guy. Lyndon Johnson, who, you know, firebombed countless. Sorry, just to quickly interject, I'll let you finish. Just, it's like Noam Chomsky said that if we upheld 
the Nuremberg principles, every single post where president would have been hanged. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it's, it's by, by making it a just about individuals and B trying to portray most of them as at least benign, if not benevolent, um, and then just singling out like a couple of cherry picked egregious examples as exceptions. Um, it's then obscuring, you know, and, and this often comes from the political left who, t- who claim to be all about, Oh, we want to look at things systemically or whatever, but then in practice, they rarely do. Yeah. Um, so they, they'll, you know, they'll talk about systemic racism, but then if you look at the things they actually fixate on, it's like, you know, witch hunting the racist hiding inside of each white cop's heart, you know, mm-hmm. um, and even the black ones too, sometimes are white supremacists. Yeah. Uh, and whereas with, with the case of democide, it's like, to me, the, the systemic thing is exactly, you know, what you've been getting at here and in, in your episode, which is, and, and as, as Rummel does in his work, like the, the ultimate problem is power itself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the abuses of power manifest in different ways, depending on, you know, unique, historical circumstances of a particular country in a particular time and place. But, um, but that the, the larger problem is power. And I could see why the more intelligent people involved in running regimes would not want common people to think of it in those terms would want them to think of it as, Oh, most governments and most people running them at least mean well and are usually benign and there's the occasional egregious example that we have to be on the lookout for. It's someone like Hitler who's easily spottable because he's screaming and, you know, gyrating around and whatever and and try to obscure things like the whole concept of the banality of evil and mm-hmm. kind of like soft, you know, soft fascism of a of a more indirect and yeah. friendly seeming kind of a type. Uh, I know yeah, I mean, question, but. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. You're right. But uh, th- this is where I, I'll kind of go to bat for Rummel when he breaks down his analysis in terms of the different types of regimes and their propensity towards democide. Uh, he, he roughly breaks them down into three categories. Uh, there's the democracies, the authoritarians, and the totalitarians. And there's a direct correlation between the amount of democide deaths and the type of regime that you have, where the democracy, and again, someone like you, you and, and, and me, we, we're not on the same page with Rommel in regards to democracy in general. He's more of a classical liberal kind of, I wouldn't call him blue-pilled, but he's he's very much big on the the enlightenment ideals of what a democracy should be. And I even say this in my episode that when you're investigating things that he was and doing research in in towards the amount of deaths that governments have caused, if you break it down into those three categories, it's very easy to see why democracy is vastly preferable to even an authoritarian regime. Where throughout the 20th century, I think he credited the uh, democracies with about 100 to a, a quarter million uh, democidal deaths. And then that shoots up radically to about 70 million uh, deaths by authoritarian regimes, and then the other hundred and hundred and five million uh, totalitarian regimes. So, in that respect, yeah, we we should we we shouldn't like uh, completely lay waste to what democracy is and what it can do, 
It's just, I think our argument would kind of be, it doesn't go far enough in regards to individual freedoms, because if there was a constitution, well, like if, if the constitution that you guys have was actually upheld the way it was really originally written, then there would be zero opportunity for democidal deaths, or at least so minimal, it wouldn't even be uh, a statistic, really, it would be almost nothing. Whereas the road that, and again, this is why I brought up earlier, the kind of the path that the crumbling US empire is on and why democide is so important right now, because this can go off the rails really quick. And with the amount of centralized power that the US federal government has, it's leaving a lot of room for some evil shit to go down if everything starts to collapse around it. Yeah, it's, you know, when you look at the powers that have been accumulated um, by the U.S. federal government over the last bit over a century, really since kind of the progressive era, mm-hmm. um, you know, usually correlated with and justified by some sort of crisis, whether real or imagined or somewhere in between, you know, like there is a problem, but it's drastically exaggerated um, to create a, a moral panic atmosphere. Um, you know, I, I think the, the the concept of like, turnkey dictatorship Mm -hmm. um is is a fair one that like there's all this power there and okay maybe it's only being exercised around the edges currently but it's all waiting dormant for Mm -hmm. you know the wrong combination of people in the driver's seat and circumstances that they can use to justify grabbing absolute power um, you know, the things that came into being as a result of World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, 9 on terror. terror, you yeah. know, all these things where, you know, all these I mean, it is a form of karma. I'm just I'm just, um, you know, not happy that I have to be potentially collateral damage of it, of, you know, all these American right wingers who rabidly cheered on George W. Bush and the Patriot Act and all that 15, 20 years ago. Well, now. They're, you know, having a lot of that, that apparatus, the Department of Homeland Security, et cetera, et cetera, is being turned on them as, you know, Ron Paul type people were saying back in the 2000s were saying like, hey, you don't want to give the government this power because even if you believe and we, we don't agree with you, but even if you believe that the Bush regime would never, you know, abuse it against uh, decent American people, like how the hell do you know that some future administration will come along that uh, it you know sees I don't know red state Christian Americans as the existential threat uh, to the to the country. Yeah, I mean don't don't I don't want anyone to get me wrong here. Like uh, I, I trash democracy a lot because at it at its best it seems like it's uh, a, like an easily cajoled mass of people uh, voting on uh, topographical things that don't actually matter. And they're easily cajoled by uh, zealots that stand on a podium and get them to vote against their own self-interest at, to the detriment of other people. To me, that's at its best. At its worst, it's, it's just a completely elite power game uh, facade for agen- uh, business agendas, right? So, yeah, I'm, but again, at the same time, I'd much rather be under Joe Biden than I would with uh, Kim Jong-un or even Vladimir Putin, who would represent the authoritarian and and the totalitarian. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess our argument would be is that we need people to realize that, yes, democracy is preferable, but we can do better. 
And the only way to make it better is by stripping power from the system. Because if you strip power from the system, there's less opportunity for them to, like you just said, use anything against you. Or ultimately, if things go really bad, to kill you for just standing up for what you believe in or what you think. Because these people are more than willing to splatter your brains up against the nearest wall if you disagree with the totalitarian or the authoritarian. And I think you can even you can even go back into ancient Greece and look at what Plato and Aristotle were writing about, about the connection between democracy collapsing and tyranny rising out of it. And I'm sure you could even tell us a little bit about the collapse of empires. What comes out of the collapse of empires? Is it usually a good thing? It doesn't seem like it's usually a good thing. It's usually something more evil than what was already there. Yeah, and it very much depends, you know, if an empire like actually fragments into pieces, typically it varies wildly from one piece to the next, how they fare in the aftermath. And there's usually some places that do okay and might in relatively short order be, you know, prospering and doing well, right? Look at, you know, some of the former Warsaw Pact countries were doing pretty well within a decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look at a place like the Czech Republic. I've never been there, but it seems like a pretty, you know, decent place with a, a high standard of living and so on. Whereas maybe Belarusia, not so much. Um, and, you know, this, it, it seems like the, the provinces of the empire that kind of had the most um, pre-existing local government, whether it actually existed or was sort of like a shadow, um, you know, kind of like parallel society sort of a thing, maybe like like Czechoslovakia had that, that if they have that in place, then they're more likely to make a successful transition away from being an imperial province Um, or or in the case of the British empire, like the so-called, you know, as they would have said in less politically correct times, white dominions, you know, because they had multiple generations of a fairly high degree of self-government within the British empire, you know, Canada, maybe up till recently and Australia, New Zealand up till recently, you know, we're, we're relatively free countries and obviously, you know, pretty prosperous and haven't had, um, you know, any recent huge democides, you know, um, I know treatment of, of native peoples in those countries is a, oh, we, is a we can of worms, but, Yeah, we do too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, not, not like large scale, say, um, maybe resembling like what happened in Yugoslavia when it broke down or something like that, um, you know, of, of just spiraling violence and whatever. Yeah, actually, there was one quick example I wanted to note uh, about Canadian democide that's very recent. Um, from the 1930s till the 1970s, uh, the Western provinces in particular, Alberta in very specifically, uh, they had a practice of uh, forced uh, sterilization for Native women, and especially. Uh, their kind of goal was that like, they're always worried about the Natives getting a bit too uppity and not staying on their reserves. And they're starting to demand more economic rights. They're starting to demand more human rights. So from, like I said, the 1930s and 1970s, anytime that a uh, Native woman would go in for any kind of medical help or surgery in a Canadian hospital, they were forcibly sterilized without their knowledge. They would have surgeons, doctors that were complicit in removing their sexual organs so that they could not have children. Now, this, now, it seems like there was many, many thousands of women that were subjected to this, 
which in turn would have resulted in a net loss of, you know, you extrapolate that out to the modern day, maybe hundreds of thousands of native people, right? That is a modern form of democide that you can directly attribute to Canada, to, to the state, for the express purpose of assimilating them and making them less of a, a problem to be dealt with. Because, well, the Canadian state has to go forward. We, we, we got stuff to do, and we, th- this can't be a part of it. We can't keep dealing with these people. The only way that Canada can be served is through removal of the problems, right? Mm-hmm. So a very typical democidal instinct that these people have or can utilize if given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've heard... Um you know, some Americans over the years sort of favorably contrast Canada's record of dealing with indigenous people versus the United States. Um, And, and I guess that's based on that. My understanding is you all did not have very many in terms of like obvious hot wars with your native peoples, like, like we did in terms of like the, the Plains Indian Wars or before that, you know, something that I've covered and I'm familiar with that most people are not the the Seminole Wars, Mm -hmm. um, which were, you know, basically wars of ethnic cleansing. Um, You know, you don't don't have the dramatic, like, um, like wounded knee massacres and, you know, big battles or whatever, but that you had this more kind of like banality of evil kind of. uh, There was more of a, like in the beginning, remember it was the it was the French that first came to the east coast of Canada, and they made inroads with the natives here in a trading relationship. Uh, the the fur trade was the huge thing, right? So for about a hundred years, from the, I believe it was like the early 1600s until the early 1700s, France it was called New France uh, was the territory that the natives didn't necessarily agree upon. France just kind of said that's what it was, right? Mm-hmm. So there's very, and again, there's hundreds of tribes from coast to coast. They all tried, there were some that were more warlike, there were some that were more peaceful, uh, agrarian kind of thing. But the main interaction that the Westerners had with the natives was trading for a common goal. They would trade their goods for their furs, and then the furs would get sent back. And that was the main uh, thing. And there was actually even a race of people up here. They're called the Métis. Mm-hmm. They're a mixture of French and native that are mostly populated around Manitoba. Uh, they were like a founding element of Canadian society as well. But uh, then the British came and kicked the French out and then the British were in charge and they mostly had good relations, but it was mostly based on trade until it became uh, actually, sorry, I'm not being a dick, but it was kind of when the American empire started to rise up. That's when Canada in like I guess you would say the British Empire at that point, in conjunction with the natives, uh, were kind of like, we gotta deal with this because we gotta become something. Because these guys down south, they're looking pretty dangerous right now. And it's obvious that they they want to expand their territory. I guess you'd put that under what the, the Monroe Doctrine eventually. Yeah, and uh, but, manifest destiny really is the, yeah, exactly, the big narrative, yeah. yeah. So I I guess, uh, where was I going with that? Just that, oh, our dealings with them were largely, like we made treaties with them that are still upheld to this day. So we we mostly made deals with them and the overwhelming majority of deaths that occurred from the native populations were from disease that they had never encountered. It wasn't intentional. It was by accident. 
we we didn't want them to die. I don't or not. I hate. Sorry, I hate people doing that. Not we. I'm not them. Fucking like, I can't be blamed for some what someone else did. But what happened was they were mostly dealing with them in a trade relationship, and disease killed a lot of them. And that's they. We made treaties with them, and then they're still respected. They think that they're unfair, and that that'll be an ongoing debate for I'm sure centuries to come. But uh, yeah, it seems different than some of the things that happened in the States. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the worst of it maybe happened a little bit later in terms of like the eugenics type stuff that you were. Yes, exactly. You were bringing exactly. Up. It happened like in the kind of throughout the 20th century, as opposed yes. to in the U.S., a lot of the the worst stuff. I mean, not that it really got great, but a lot of the, the most like blatant, you know, wars and things occurred in the 19th century. And it is um, revealing that. Uh, it was in in regard to the the Nez Perce War mm-hmm. um, that happened in the American you know Pacific Northwest in I think it was the 1870s that um, when the U.S. Army was pursuing Chief Joseph and his his uh, Nez Perce uh, tribe um, and and they led the U.S. Army on this long hundreds of miles long uh, uh, chase before they eventually got cornered and and surrounded and forced to surrender but that Chief Joseph was trying to evacuate his people mm-hmm. up to across the canadian border okay. and so this is an example i point to and, and another one i point to is um freed slaves and uh, as well as as indians um in the earlier 19th century fleeing to spanish florida yeah. um because they would have a greater degree of freedom and be left alone there um and and i use this as examples of look Legitimately, there are countless cases of people trying to flee to the United States for freedom and tolerance and yep. whatever like that, no doubt. But it's very dependent on who you're talking about because there are clearly examples of people trying to flee away from American you know, jurisdiction uh, to protect their life and freedom and so forth. And I, yep. and I point to you know, northern Indians sometimes trying to flee to Canada mm-hmm. because at that time, at least they'd be you know, more, more likely to be left alone. And then, you know, Southern uh, Indians and escaped slaves fleeing to Spanish Florida for the same reason. So this idea that it's always people rushing towards America for those good things. Well, there are, there are um, exceptions, but um, yeah, I from, what I guys- gather, it's, from what I gather, it seemed like a lot of the native tribes here, at least the way they, I, the way I understand them saying it is that they felt like the British empire at the time was the lesser of two evils to deal with. And so they trusted the Brits more than they did the Americans because of the way, I guess, America revolutionized and became their own state and were insistent on expanding westward. They just, they saw the British empire, I think as something more, I don't know, I guess, stable and more trustworthy than this new thing that could possibly threaten them that that's all i meant to say by that yeah yeah no and and i i very much agree with that um from my own studies of you know colonial and revolutionary american history and my studies in graduate school the british empire like i'm i'm sure you know more specifically on canadian history than i do um but i did you know learn a fair amount just as as someone studying the british empire and you know it's how i would explain to students when i was teaching like why did most Native American tribes in what today we think of as the Eastern U.S., why did most of them side with the British in the American Revolution? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because they, they saw that as the lesser evil, because at least at the time, the British government 
was often exercising a restraining influence yeah. on people moving super aggressively into native territory. Mm-hmm. Things like the proclamation of 1763, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that for much of 19th century Canadian history, that was continuing to occur where, where, um, you know, the British parliament and crown were often to some degree legitimately being kind of like arbiters between white settlers on the ground mm-hmm. and the native tribes and, and, you know, the British government, at least nominally was trying to treat the native tribes like they were part of the British empire, you know, population. And, and even here, like you even had to throw in Quebec into the equation yeah, because yeah, the French well, were, had their, have their, to this day, they consider themselves a distinct society and they, after trying to govern them with an iron, not an iron fist, but trying to govern Quebec with a, uh, a British legal and uh, political system uh, they found it untenable to the point where they proclaimed the Quebec Act. I believe it was in 1779, uh, where they just pretty much said, OK, fine, Quebec, you can use Roman Catholic religion. You can use your common law, use everything you guys want to to, to kind of uh, govern yourselves. We, we won't interfere. Just do right. what you think is best and we'll stay out of it and we'll mm-hmm. make sure the larger Canadian territory is protected. Yeah, which, you know, kind of at their best, the the British as imperialists would be, you know, very <laughs> yeah, pragmatic best, and, yeah. and would some would sometimes be, you know, relatively tolerant. Then yeah. it was a totally different story dealing with the Irish at the time. But, you know, um, <laughs> that was they, more close to home, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they were like most imperialists. They were quite comfortable with double standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I and I wonder and, you know, maybe you have thoughts on this that it was better for the indigenous people of Canada when London still had a lot of say over what happened in Canada and that perhaps as Canada got more home rule, then Canadians were more likely to be kind of aggressive, more aggressive about, you know, maybe pushing into native territory and also cultural imperialism. um, Once London had much less of a say, over Canadian internal affairs. Do you think that's a reasonable? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a pretty fair assessment because, uh, yeah, the the British at least had the tradition of dealing with the native populations as not necessarily an equal, but like I said earlier, like a trade partner. There was history, there was treaties made, there was deals brokered, whereas this new Canadian thing that popped up in 1867 uh, they were like, again, our founding fathers were trying to make a name for their country, build up their, our own mythology, our own identity, our own political culture. So, yeah, they, I, I can see exactly what you mean. They, they would have been more um, uh, wanting to put the natives into the Canadian fold rather than accommodate them the way the British did. And you're right, that would absolutely have accelerated any genocide uh, democidal policies they had especially in the, the, that's a big thing you hear about right now the the residential school system and trying to assimilate natives into canadian culture uh that only went into like you said that only went into hyperdrive once canada became its own state it was still technically a dominion under the british empire but its own state within the state system uh, yeah, that's absolutely when democidal policies started to escalate for the natives here. Agreed. Yes. Yeah, because I, th- I think you see the same thing with the United States, where very often the most aggressive incursions into native territory and things like that 
weren't coming in a top-down sense, like from DC ordering people like out on the frontiers, like, all right, you know, go violate their territory. Very mm-hmm. often it was, it was like, you know, locals on the spot yep. who would, you know, on their own initiative, sometimes in violation of U.S. law and treaties, by the way, yeah. would, would decide to just, all right, we're going to get, we're going to go quote unquote off the reservation on our end and yeah. go attack these, these uh, people, regardless of what, whether the federal government wants us to or not. And then what happens is if you can just get a, get a hot shooting war going on, then mm-hmm. it's very easy to pressure the federal government of like, well, we didn't want this to happen. We didn't want these damn settlers going into that territory, but they did. Yeah. Well, now we got to pick sides. And well, if we have to pick sides, we're going to side with the settlers, even even if they're technically breaking the law um, and trespassing versus siding with the savages. Yeah. And I mean, at the time, it kind of seems like before there was a widely uh, shared information systems, transportation systems, roadways and stuff that back in like the 19th century, a lot of places were almost city states to some degree. So the highest authority would have been like the mayor. And he would have been able to enact some sort of genocidal, democidal policies if he wanted to, without much retribution from the feds, right? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think people who haven't studied empires realize, and I don't know if this is still possible today, given the existence of, you know, instantaneous communication and very fast transportation, but that for most of history until very recently, empires, no matter how centrally controlled they were in theory, just because of logistics and technology ended up being decentralized in practice Mm -hmm. because communication and transportation were so slow. And so very often it wasn't, sometimes it was the central government of the empire driving expansion and ordering expansion in a top-down way. But very often, perhaps even more often, it was the so-called man on the spot, um, the guy out there, maybe even technically, you know, breaking laws and rules to do what he's doing, but then get retroactively legitimized if he's successful. You know, somebody yeah. like like Hernan Cortez uh, for the Spanish or somebody like, um, you know, was it Robert uh, Clive or whatever, the, the British East India Company guy who took over a bunch of India. Like very often these guys were actually like renegade. Um, you know, not even following, like violating imperial orders or whatever, just doing what they wanted to. But if they pulled it off, they would get, you know, retroactively legitimized, you know, and given given titles and things that that, that often drove drove imperial expansion, even in cases where the central government might have been not looking to expand. Uh, in those particular places. So I, I know we, we've gotten off on a whole, you know, imperial uh, uh, tangent or whatever, but I can't resist that sort of stuff. I think people very often don't have quite a grasp of the magnitude of democides, even if you just took the 20th century and added them up, up altogether, because most people, you know, they haven't read Hummel's book or any of the other stuff out there on this. And, you know, unfortunately they haven't listened to your podcast episodes. So they, they might have an impression that like, Oh yeah, there's the Holocaust some of them might think like that's a unique example of government, you know, deliberate mass murder. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if they're a little bit more sophisticated and well-read, they might have some sort of a notion of like, didn't Stalin also kill millions of people and didn't Mao also kill millions of people. And, you know, if they're really more sophisticated than the average person walking around, they might be able to drop uh, the Armenian genocide or something in there. Um, but even even people who who have that degree, which is a lot more knowledge than most random people just walking around, 
they they still don't have like the full magnitude of just Mm -hmm. how big the figures are and how tragically common these uh, democides were um i'm trying to remember I, I used to talk about this in my classes very often when we would get done covering world war ii one of the things i would i would usually wrap up with was giving uh, some statistics to to show particularly american students who often have this very warped view of world war ii as a whole you know it's very american-centric and um you know, doesn't really grasp the magnitude of like the countries that suffered the worst, how horrific it was. Um, and so I'd give figures, you know, on, on like how many, how many Soviets died in world war two versus how many Americans. And like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like comparing an ant pile to, you know, Mount Everest or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'd break down the deaths by country. I would also break down the deaths by um, civilians versus actual combatants to show like way more civilians got killed. Uh, mm-hmm. than than actual soldiers in world war ii and like basically trying to just lead them to the realization that we should not look at world war ii as like a romp them stomp them you know romantic adventure of the good guys defeating the bad guys and isn't this a wonderful thing that we should be eager to repeat mm-hmm. but more even if we think it was necessary even if you do come to that conclusion to think like it's it's horrifically tragic and unfortunate that it was necessary because most of the people who died in it were just random civilians in the wrong place. Um, And, but, but then I would, I would sometimes after covering all that, I would then bring in some of the figures um, from, from Rummel and to show that yes, wars in the 20th century killed a lot of people. Um, you know, obviously World War One and World War Two are the two biggest ones, but then you add in all the other smaller ones, it still adds up pretty quick of, you know, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And th- then I'd, I'd bring in some of Rummel's figures on democides and point out your significant, if you were a person living in the 20th century uh, who died an unnatural death at the hands of a state you are significantly more likely to have been murdered by your own state in a democide than you were to have been killed by another state's military in the form of a war. And I I forget, I don't know if if you recall offhand um, what exactly Rummel's conclusion was. I used to have it in my class notes when I was teaching, Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think it was what nine times more likely to be killed by your own government than to be killed by someone else's government during a, a wartime or something like that. Does that. That's correct. I think he had it pegged at seven to nine okay. X. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, you bring up a great point and that's kind of the evil genius of the Stalin quote that I led my episode off with is that, you know, a million people dying is just a statistic. One guy dying is a tragedy, but it's pretty well illustrated by this thumbnail, the thumbnail for my episode. It was, uh, an artist's rendition of all the democide deaths over the 20th century, which Rummel pegged at 174 million people uh, in total. Uh, now, the artist's depiction is called The Ring of Tears. And again, you can find it on the University of Hawaii website. Uh, it, it tries to get you to visualize what that many corpses would look like. So his assertion is that if you took those 174 million dead people by their own government, not by war, not by disease, by directly the government killing them. If you line them up head to toe, it would wrap around the earth several times. And the artist's rendition of that is quite chilling. 
when you think of it in that way, then it's not just a statistic. It's mass death on a scale that's almost unimaginable in terms of sheer numbers. It has to be seen to some degree. Um, if you want micro examples, you can obviously look up the uh, one one that I found the most chilling was the killing fields in Cambodia of just the walls and walls of skulls that were lined up, which actually I think uh, I have right here. Cambodia was the uh, if you had to peg the most intensified democide campaign in human history, it was Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge who uh, they democided. Let's see. Let me just make sure here over uh over two two and a quarter million people in four years um that is unbelievable because it amounts to eight percent of their population every year for right. those four years being just willfully destroyed because they didn't line up with with Pol Pot's ideology or, or even in- just they were they were a little bit educated or even just they wore glasses and that's obviously yeah, it could proof. be for yeah, it could even be for yeah nonsensical reasons like like you just said. Um, but yeah, getting getting people to realize that is a battle because like it's 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 almost like dealing with quantum physics and stuff. You can't uh, you can't conceptualize these things easily, but you need yeah. to you need to understand just how mo- how much more likely you are to be killed by your government than by anyone that's threatening to invade you or some pandemic this is much more likely to be the case like Mm -hmm. you said seven to nine times x right yeah yeah i I feel like the inability of most people including myself in in most instances uh to wrap their head around like just gigantic quantities of things Mm -hmm. um really it kind of makes you just sort of go go numb just kind of go uh you know i'm just like oh this many million people killed this many million people you know it just you know um that's why certainly if you're trying to get sympathy the the correct move is always to tell an anecdote right this is why you know anne frank's diary or the individual narratives of somebody like ellie wiesel or whatever exactly you know i've done a lot more to make people like really wrap their head around the holocaust than just you know this many million people over here and whatever or even just that Um, simple uh image of that little girl in schindler's list with the pink jacket right that means more to, to to people than any stat you can throw at them yeah, yeah, or the little girl um, on fire with an napalm in Vietnam. Sure, um, yeah. that famous photo did a lot more than just giving quantitative data about this many million villages got napalm, villagers got napalm, or whatever. Yeah, um, and and I and I think of even you know other example like I think this is why a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around the concept of evolution is because they just can't really wrap their head around the time horizons you're talking about. You know, they they go like well, how could a person turn into a monkey? And like, they don't, they don't grasp that. Like we're talking over like zillions of generations, you know? I remember, I remember Richard Dawkins making an an analogy about this, where if you laid out the whole of living life on planet earth in terms of a keyboard, that human life would occupy the space between that final key and the end of the piano board. Like that, that's how small it is compared to the the whole of the other keys that are on that keyboard. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're right. You need, you need certain little analogies like that to help people get there. Yeah. Um, So Rommel argues that, 
you know, liberal democracies, which then you, you run into the, you know, tricky problem of how do you define that? And then as, as you covered in your episode, there's degrees of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, tend to be less likely to commit democides on as much of a scale mm-hmm. uh, as more authoritarian regimes. And then in turn, totalitarian regimes are more likely to go even further um when i was and, and your your mentioning of the khmer rouge in cambodia uh, made me think of this when uh when i was teaching world civ 2 um which is world history since 1600 was how how we did it at my college um you know democide would come up big particularly like from the french revolution on yeah and you know, I, I would cover certain particular instances to varying degrees of, of depth and what have you. And we would watch um, decent chunks of like uh, the the film version of Neil Ferguson's War of the World, which covers a lot of that actually pretty yep. well. And, you know, they'd be exposed to things that many of them had never heard of before, whether it's the Holodomor or the Armenian Genocide or the Khmer Rouge. And I, you know, used to bring up in discussion it's kind of you have to have i think almost like a dark sense of humor a morbid sense of humor gallows humor which i do and not everybody does and you know there are people who get offended when you even are semi-humorous about you know a dark subject like this but i I used to bring it up like it, it gets very messy and difficult to compare democides to each other and to say oh this one's worse than that one because there's so many uh, different criteria and factors so you know i used mm-hmm. to say like look if you go by total body count you probably have to say mao zedong is the number one you know democidal yeah. dictator ever um but then you have to factor in um things like you know what causes uh rummel to you know identify uh the khmer rouge as arguably mm-hmm. the most intense democidal regime ever where you you um you have to factor in the like you can't just say oh this this is the best baseball player of his era because he got the most hits like you'd have to then factor in like okay how many times was he at bat though right and all these other things to figure out like is he really the best at, at getting a hit um and so yeah you have to factor in how big is the country that the person or the regime is ruling yeah um because obviously if you're china you've got a lot more bodies to work with than if you're cambodia and then you also have to factor in potentially the time span in which this took place so you know one regime kills a million people and does it in a year versus another regime that does it gradually over several decades you know do we then want to say that there's these moral distinctions and that this one yes they're both evil but this one is worse and i used to kind of jokingly say like if you had mass murdering dictator you know trading cards and you're trying to say like who's the all-time champ of slaughtering his own people this is this is the sort of stuff i would do in my classes um which you know caused the occasional student to get offended but most of them seem to seem to appreciate it as being more interesting than their other history classes um you know would you just go by total body count? Would you factor in uh, years in which it took place? Would you factor in the size of the country's population in which it took place? So, yeah, you could argue that the the Cambodian regime of Pol Pot, which does not get talked about very often, at least as far as I can tell in, in the Western world, 
maybe is the worst democidal regime ever when you put it in proportion to a the size of the country's population and b the time span in which it happened um and then you know does that then open up the door where you could say i don't know that hitler's democidal regime was worse than stalin's because yeah stalin killed more people but he did it in a larger country over a longer time horizon Mm -hmm. Um, and then questions of means like if if you kill a few million people of your population via gas chamber is that actually worse than if you just deliberately starve the same number of people to death like all all these these moral questions you know it's it reminds me of there was a a a show i I actually kind of enjoyed watching because again I'm, i'm okay with dark stuff um Maybe I'm not. Maybe it's part of my depression. I don't know. But or maybe my depression causes me to, you know, be be intrigued by dark things. But um, there was a show that used to be on. uh, I can't remember if the show was actually called Scale of Evil, um, but it was this this particular like super expert um, psychologist on serial killers who had actually devised a scale, like a rating system to compare and rate serial killers against each other. And he would factor in um, a variety of things like you know, how um, aware of themselves and what they were doing was the person mm-hmm. and, and maybe the person who's like more just divorced from reality is not quite as evil as the person who's, you know, more uh, lucidly aware of what they're doing um, and is more deliberate. Um, the person who's more, you know, impulsive maybe is not quite as evil as the person who's more cold and calculating, but also things like um, the method of, of killing and are you torturing someone or are you just, you know, killing them quickly and efficiently? Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on like how, that, how, how we should try and like, should we even bother um, uh, kind of comparatively ranking and, and that sort of thing, different uh, democides in history? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's definitely a fascinating thought experiment. It like it, to me, it almost has echoes of, a, of the trolley problem and then like, what would you do? Um, but if, if we're, first of all, before I talk about what I would think, let's go with what Rummel did. So when calculating the most lethal regimes in history, Rummel was using the duration of the regime, uh, the annual rate of the population that was killed, the amount that they were killed and the population that should have been at the time period. So he's he's balancing those. Um, and like I said, Cambodia clocked in at number one, uh, not far behind were the Turks from 1919 to 1923 with the uh, Armenian genocide. Uh, the Yugoslavians, uh, I guess under the, uh, I guess they would be like the proto-Nazis uh, from 41 to 45. Uh, they had a very high body count. Even Poland in post-war, in post-war Poland, forty-five to forty-eight, they were in the top five as well. Um, now, what what would I think about this kind of thought experiment? I think that you do. It's important to note who the worst offenders were, and you do have to kind of. There are value judgments involved, like you kind of noted there. Um, you do have to know, though, who the worst offenders at least are as a group so that you can kind of point towards the idea that, OK, we know that when people do this as a political system, this happens. So if you can attribute certain uh, policies that flow from certain systems and certain ideas then you're more able to counter it before it even becomes a thing. So I do think that what you're talking about is an important and valuable thought experiment. Uh, It's weird to even kind of think just as a quick tangent that 
technology restrained a lot of the worst impulses of these people at certain times. Like what would the what would the Turks have done to the Armenians if they had the technology the Nazis had? Would it have been 10 times worse? Yeah, right. yeah. And, and, and the same thing with um with the Khmer Rouge regime. Um, you know, if they had had the same degree of um, organization and technology and logistical capability as the Nazi regime had had, how many more people would they have killed? Because in, in the case of the Khmer Rouge, I know that a lot of their killing was done by people like using blunt instruments because yeah, they hammers. didn't even have yeah, enough. Yeah. yeah, they didn't even have enough ammo to just shoot everybody they wanted to kill. So they're literally just like clubbing people with mm-hmm. rifle butt stocks and hammers and, and clubs and things. Yeah, I mean, no, they, like it's it's a it's a it's an intriguing question. If I had to put down a couple of metrics that I would use to calculate the worst, I think it would definitely be the population that was available to be democided and how quickly that happened. So I guess to me, the amount of people democided in re- in regards to the time frame, I think that's a pretty accurate summation. And I bet I like again, I would actually actually have to do like a study on this, but I would not be surprised in the slightest if those two metrics lined up perfectly with the utopian idealism of the regime. Hmm. This is express like it's expressly important we do this now and get rid of all these people right now. We don't have time to wait. We can't put them in a gulag for 20 years. We're killing them, getting it over with, and moving on to the goal. That is what I would te- to me, that would be the most evil. And the most representative of like, I guess you would say pure democide. So, yeah. So uh, kind of um, in terms of the motivation, a sense of great urgency combined with a belief that the end point utopia towards which you are working is so great and so much better than the current fallen world in which we exist that pretty much anything is justified and as quickly as as you can do it right what's what's the saying by any means necessary, necessary right yeah. there you go yeah and it seems like i i feel like discussions of means are deliberately kind of like kept out of the conversation as much as possible at least in american discourse i don't know how it is uh elsewhere but you know, I, I feel like when they even in the rare cases where there are legit discussions happening in conventional uh, classroom settings and things like that, that that the discussion is always just about ends, you know, and, and yeah. so you'll get some you get some, you know, utopian uh, socialists being like, I just want everybody to have a good standard of living and have access to health care and housing and this and that. And so it's like, well, how can you argue against that? Because that person is is just, you know, basing everything on their stated intentions. And so yeah. you end I up mean, sounding like I'm against people having good health care and housing, you know, um, and. Whereas if you if you bring in means, it's like, okay, probably most people uh, who aren't complete sadists and psychopaths would be like, yeah, I think it'd be better if people had a better standard of living and good healthcare and housing or whatever. But yeah, I I wonder if if that's intrinsically tied to it seems like since the 19th century, especially with countries in the West, this deep seated connection between utilitarianism and democracy where democracy is inherently a a system of utilitarian ethics of we have to do the most amount for the most amount of people. 
So if there are people that fall through the cracks or are the eggs that need to be broken, that's completely justifiable because we're trying to service the greater, the greater good, the greater amount of people. I, I, if I had to gun to my head, I guess that's what I would have to say is why this ideology is such a prevalent feature of all of our systems right now. And not looking at something like what we would look at in a libertarian sense of everything has to be balanced ethically according to a a strict moral objective standard. Well, if you get into the game of democracy, well, the tyranny of the majority can rule and it often does. So dissent and uh, naysaying, well, that just, it, it can't be tolerated because the greater good is at stake. Yeah. It seems like there's always an inherent tension in a democracy even a somewhat sham democracy like most modern democracies are in my mm-hmm. opinion between pluralism, right? If, if it actually is the people ruling, then you would value their, their ability to debate and disagree with each other and so forth uh, in order to try and arrive at the, at the truth and at the best, yeah. you know, policies yet at the same time, there's always this contrary inherent uh, dynamic in democracy of conformity of yeah if you're not going along with whatever the policy is, then you're an enemy within who's trying to sabotage the success of that policy. Um, not that you legitimately disagree with it and have criticisms of it, but that you're, you know, an, uh, almost like a saboteur mm-hmm. uh, within the system because you're not going along with the rest of the tribe. Um, that there's this like inherent, you know, as tribal primates, there's this inherent thing uh, in democracy, maybe even more so than in obvious top-down uh, authoritarian regimes of, you know, pressure to conform horizontal enforcement, um, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I would argue, and, and um, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. I would argue that American progressivism is a, is a much more dangerous ideology than most people, even most conservatives realize and I would argue that American progressivism is an inherently authoritarian ideology when you actually break it down, you know, uh, ob- objectively to, to what it is they really believe in, in terms of ends and means and everything, um, that it's inherently authoritarian and that it is at least, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, maybe incipiently, I'm not sure. Uh, that it also it's inherently authoritarian and it also contains within it at least the seeds and the potential of becoming fully totalitarian Mm -hmm. and that like you can see it in practice over the last hundred plus years in the united states in its history but you can also even see it in the theoretical writings of people like woodrow wilson and some of the other you know earliest progressives um people like like herbert crowley and some others where when you really break down what they're talking about, when they talk about modern progressive democracy and where they think history is, um, you know, uh, the end point towards which history is evolving teleologically, that there is this kind of authoritarian slash totalitarian um, thing lurking there. Now it's, it's camouflaged in euphemism and, you know, benevolent sounding language, but that there is an iron fist in the velvet glove to use kind of a cliche. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. And also um, is, is the, is the Canadian left basically just kind of also enthralled to largely the same 
ideology um, is is Trudeau basically just a an American progressive under different you know different jurisdiction, um, maybe using a little bit of different language here and there, but it, it is is that basically the same thing? So wherever you want to go with that. Okay. Uh, well, first thing you 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 said that there's this like, uh, and I I don't know if you necessarily meant it like this, but like you said that there was some endpoint to strive for. I don't think we, I think you're absolutely right in your characterization of progressivism, but I don't think there for them, there never is an end point. You can only, you can only go forward with the revolution. It's never going to end. So there is no real end point. It's just constantly going towards whatever the progressive ideal of the time would be, or the, the new group that you can big up in this and that. Um, what, sorry. And you were just kind of saying that it it had the seeds of totalitarianism within it? Yeah, yeah, that there are inherent aspects of the progressive ideology that even most progressives don't, I don't think most progressives um, are kind of like self-aware and intellectual, because in, 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 the, in the U.S., in many places, unless you're in like a very red uh, area, um, there is such a thing as the default liberal, where yeah. if you just kind of like, go with the flow ideologically of, of kind of like what's around you and the major institutions. And you just, you know, you're not particularly political or ideological. You just don't really, you know, ever question things or think about it. Um, and you just go along to get along. You're going to end up being some sort of a progressive um, person by default. And that most people, therefore, even who are progressive, couldn't really explain accurately what their ideology even is yeah. um, because they've never, they've never had to question it and they've never chosen to question it. Um, so they're oblivious to this and they would think I'm, I'm a crazy kook for saying this, but that, that there are inherent parts of their ideology that point in the direction of authoritarianism. And ultimately if you pursue the ideology to its logical conclusions, you end up in kind of a totalitarian place. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think here if there's any ideologies we can point towards that wouldn't necessarily result in totalitarianism if taken to their full extent in the, maybe with, I guess maybe that's why people like us are attracted to more anarchist type thought, because that would just be at its worst, you know, uh, a, a, a regression towards some sort of uh, state of nature at its worst, like a <laughs> return to monk type situation. Um, I d- no, I think that I guess technically then you could characterize all the democidal regimes of the 20th century as being progressive in their own way. Uh, from the Nazis and the Maoists and the Soviets, they all had the progression the the progression of their preferred group of people being an endpoint to some degree a utopian progressivism i i i you you laid it out beautifully i'm finding it really hard to even think of anything to i'm not trying to rebut you on purpose but it, i can't even think of much of a critique in that fashion um but you're talking you were asking me about the canadian left and sorry can you just restate the question about the canadian left? Um, I, i'm just curious as an insider in that in that state um you know who I'm sure has infinitely more of an understanding and grasp of like what's really going on in in Canadian politics than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think like that the ideology that drives somebody like Justin Trudeau or his political okay. ancestors, is it basically the same as the ideology of American progressives? Um, maybe with some minor, you know, differences uh, to account for a different, you know, 
history and a somewhat different culture. Okay. Or yeah, is it basically the same thing? I think it's more it's, over the last eight to 10 years, it's been more or less the same thing. Um, now I, I wrote about this in a piece for uncanceled.ca where I was talking about uh, the pandemic uh, citizenship in Canada under the pandemic. And I called what you're referring to now is the neocans, the neo-Canadians. Um, I see this in large part as a reaction to what you guys are doing, because as much as it pains Canadians to admit it, and not me, but to the average one, we're constantly enthralled to what you guys are doing, what you guys are talking about, what you guys are doing politically. Canadians are so deeply invested in what's going on down there that we like there's this faux superiority that Canadians give off about we're better than Americans, although they're constant. But there's this weird thing where they're constantly enthralled to what's going on in in, the, in America. Yeah, I think so, it's similar for a lot of Brits, too, by the way. Yeah, that sounds correct. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I saw this phenomenon of like like what I would call the neocans. This accelerated right after Trump got elected, where this was like a this the Canadian left was so concerned that the social contagion could spread to our great country and our social to the point where they were even trying to label relatively benign premiers up here that happened to be conservative as like is this Trump Jr. Is he going to inst- instill Trumpism in Canada? And there's this looming threat of MAGA invading Canada, even to the point when we had our uh, our trucker convoy. Exactly. That's what they I was going to mention. Were, the Canadian media's first thing was we got to stop these Trumpers from coming up and taking over our capital. And like they had bouncy castles and all they were asking for was to the lockdowns to end and to, to end the ma- vaccine mandates. They were the most... It was like a big uh, like tailgate party. Mm-hmm. They weren't trying to overthrow anything, but sorry, just to get back <laughs> to your question, the Canadian left is like uber hyper accelerated off the idea of Trumpism, especially coming up here. And we're in large part reacting to that. That's what they're reacting to. And it's especially interesting when we just happened to have Trudeau get elected in 2015, who was already this kind of empty, this empty vassal, but just filled up with ideas of progressive ideology and how to instill them in Canadian society, come to be the prime minister at the time when Trump was taking hold in the States and him being like this champion, this, this, he, he's going to be the vanguard of the great Canadian Republic. Right. So I feel like that's the huge part of why, the new Canadian, the neocans are the way they are right now. It also um, occurs to me that, um, you know, there, there's always been sort of like a, a European version of American progressivism. It's not the same, but there's, you know, important parallels and things. Um, but that I, I suppose one could make a case that the kind of World Economic Forum and some of those other institutions yeah, yeah. like that, you know, that, that they are attempting to essentially globalize something that's not exactly 100% identical with American progressivism, but it's pretty damn close. Mm-hmm. And that Trudeau as a WEF kind of a guy, um, you know, and all those sorts of globalists, most of the people in the Biden administration, same thing, um, that, that they have this now kind of like uh, uh, globalist 
universalist idea of progressivism that's you know um kind of like their version of the neoconservative ideology that we know what the end of history is and we just have to um help keep nudging things in the in the right direction yeah i mean i i feel like if you ask those like yeah they they are absolutely global progressives that want to make a universalist ideology out of this that's I, that's another point where it doesn't end there i don't think it would end there but that's the next step obviously and but if you ask them i bet you they would kind of present it as like um a star trek kind of finality to the way the world is a world government and everyone gets along and stuff but in practice it would probably end up looking a lot more like a democidal regime out of soviet russia or maoist china in practice yeah. right the so yeah i completely understand what you're saying there okay um and i'm i'm unfortunately don't have too much more time there's like mm-hmm. a million other things uh, I'd I'd love to bring up and ask you about, but you know, definitely I'll direct everybody to go listen to your episode because there's a whole bunch of important stuff uh, you. that you mentioned there that you know we didn't mention here because of, well, number one, I didn't want to just reiterate everything in your episode because people <laughs> still need to go listen to it. But number two, yeah. I wanted to get off on all all sorts of random interesting uh, tangents, and we did. But um, yeah, this is something that uh, occurred to me this morning as I was. Uh, re-listening to your episode for the first time since right after you published it okay and i know it's something that had occurred to you because before we started recording um, you actually mentioned it which is how do we think about with this concept of democide how Mm. do we think about for lack of a better term the covidian regime and whether this regime at least in some countries the way it was done and all of the collateral damage and harm it did much of which i would argue a reasonable intelligent person could foresee and so at least at the very least would be in an individual instance called negligent homicide um or something like that uh, i don't know intentional manslaughter um i don't i don't know exactly what it gets blurry right yeah yeah um you know do do you think we should perhaps think about the covidian regime as being maybe like a a new type of even more kind of like sneaky indirect even more indirect than previous indirect democides or would that be hyperbolic i don't consider it hyperbolic i mean if you broke it down into the pandemic into a few different parts i think we can try and dissect it a little bit further so if you started off purely with just let's start off right at the beginning the gain of function research that it seems like almost certainly caused the pandemic to begin with now it seems as though the obama administration banned gain of function research on american soil because of the inherent risk that it posed to everyone else right seems quite reasonable so, and I, I don't think that anyone would disagree with that. That was his at least stated purpose. So what happened? Well, you got Fauci and the NIH colluding with people with like Peter Dozik, allegedly from people like Peter Dozik for the EcoHealth Alliance to offshore the gain of function research to China. Now, I don't think it was intentional that it was released, but even if it was accidental released, that still points towards the idea that the U.S. skirted the law to get the, this virus worked on, it got out and it killed millions of people in the end. So I guess if I had to make sort of a base level analogy, it would be, this strikes me as something like 
a guy with a residential house and a family um, decides that he's going to start cooking meth in his basement. And one of his children go down and die because of the experiment. Maybe they drink one of the, the solutions or they, they touch something and it causes a fire and it kills them. That guy just can't turn around and say, well, you know what? It's part of, that's the cost of doing business. Sometimes kids die when I'm doing my experiments and making money, right? So too bad. You can't do that at an individual level. And Rummel argues that you can't do that at a governmental level. You have to apply the law equally to states as you do to people. So if you look at the lab leak from that perspective, and then even accounting for the lack of action, once they most certainly knew that it was escaped from the laboratory, you can't tell me that it escaped somewhere in October of 2019 and that they didn't start acting until March of 2020 that they aren't responsible for trying to cover up the project that got out of hand. So to me, I think you can classify a large chunk of the pandemic just on that alone to democide because they failed to act when they should have, because let's not, they pretend to be the parent, not us. They pretend to be the parent. So if they're going to pretend to be the parent and take all the rights and responsibilities, they have to account for all the bad things that happened under their watch and what they failed to do. And like you just said, I think that smacks of criminal negligence or some sort of uh, negligence that resulting in death, something Re- of this reckless nature. endangerment, you know, of exactly. Yeah. If, if I, um, you know, take one of my children for a ride on a motorcycle with me and I not only let them not wear a helmet, I make them not wear a helmet. Exactly. And yes. then I go riding like super aggressively. I'm going a hundred miles an hour down hairpin turns and whatever. And eventually, you know, we crash and my kid dies. I mean, mm-hmm. a reasonable person would say like, yeah, you know, and somehow I survived just by luck. A reasonable person would say like, yeah, you, you have, maybe it's not a quite the benchmark of murder, But it's such a degree of recklessness and negligence that you deserve some sort of blame and punishment for causing that. Yeah. And like I said to you off air, I was I am going to make an addendum episode to my original democide episode where I'm going to clarify some of these things. I'd almost be willing to call it. I mean, again, I'm conflicted because I just came up with this, but maybe you could call it passive democide because they weren't actively engaged in wanting to kill people. But like we said, the lines get blurry when you start to talk about what responsibilities did they have and what did they choose to ignore? Right. And, you know, a reasonable person standard is used very often in the legal system. And, you know, in the, I'm guessing probably the next thing that you would get to, um, and I'm, I'm happy to let you uh, dig into it, sure. um, is, you know, then, okay, once the thing is happening, mm-hmm. uh, the pandemic is occurring, and there's all the damage that's going to be caused just by that alone, mm-hmm. then you throw in, you know, the lockdown regime and all of this, like, drastic, draconian, excessive stuff, much of which did did little or nothing to curb the pandemic it's itself right. and, and many of which was even counterproductive. And then that also had all these completely foreseeable uh, uh, side effects and collateral damage on people eight ways from Sunday. And, you know, I would invoke the reasonable person standard and say like, okay, especially when you're talking about the people that are, that are like the, the, the technocrats, 
who are running all the, the bureaucracies and things of a state, they always will justify their existence by kind of saying, oh, well, you know, I'm the expert. We're the best and brightest. We know we know what to do for whatever it is, public health, infrastructure, whatever. Um, and so, okay, you're saying that you deserve to run all this, uh, these institutions and have all this power because you're so much smarter and more expert than us. So like, how could you not, seems like someone with an I, IQ, like of Forrest Gump level would be able to say, like, if you shut down civilization for months on end, there's going to be all this collateral damage that's caused. It's completely foreseeable. Yeah, you're absolutely right on both sides, because on the one side, either they knew and didn't care or they did know and they chose to do it anyways. Mm -hmm. So either way, they're kind of fucked if they admit to it. Right. But again, like uh, Rummel brings up like, yeah, let's talk about the let's talk about the lockdowns, because it was an unprecedented choice for them to make that they had to have known would cause a lot of it at bare minimum social instability, mental health crises and uh, bankruptcies, like economically and societally, they had to have known there was at least a cost to doing some of these policies. They must have known. And as Rummel points out in his democide uh, definition, um, if you're going to make people live under a uh, requisition system or through the imposition of lethal living conditions, I think that you can easily quantify any of the deaths of despair that resulted from the pandemic lockdowns as democide, because again, they had to have known. And if they didn't, they're negligent on that front. So Mm. either way, they're guilty of that. And I don't think that there's much of a, a debate on that one as much as you could with maybe some of the other things we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Well, it, it strikes me as just like a less a less visually obvious and blatant version of rounding up people, whether it's, you know, indigenous people onto reservations or whether it's um, non-combatants in a counterinsurgency campaign, like the U S yep. you know, running in the Philippines or, you know, the British running in the Boer war internment camps where, yeah, where, where you're, you're, you know, reconcentration um, rounding up people into these internment camps and the conditions in them are terrible, cramped, unsanitary. Um, you're not providing them with decent food. And then like, oh, you know, a shit ton of them die of, of disease and things like that. And it's like, yeah, well, what did you think was going to happen mm-hmm. when you, you do this to these people? And so to me, the, the lockdown regime is just sort of like a, a somewhat more um camouflaged a somewhat less obvious version of the same thing where it's like okay it's not as obvious because you're not being rounded up into a camp or whatever but like you're being placed under virtual house arrest in some jurisdictions mm-hmm. um you know all of the things that give your life joy and meaning are being forcibly taken from you and shut down yep. and you're put in situations where there's like you know human beings can't thrive in a situation where there's nothing to do but take mind altering substances and watch Netflix all day long for, for weeks and months and maybe even years on end Mm -hmm. Um, that this is just like a modern smiley face, sanitized, less blatant version of rounding people up into internment camps with bad conditions. Yes. And it absolutely had the undertones of a collective, a collectivist utopian ideal. Again, Uh, we're just doing this for your own good. You know, that we don't want to, we have to, and you just have to go along or else you're going to be, in some instances, people were arrested, they were fined, 
and they had their lives ruined for non non-compliance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To me an early, um, you know, right, right from the beginning, like almost everything they did made no sense to me just based on kind of basic logic and common sense. And even just a basic understanding of like how respiratory viruses work and things. Um, you know, you, you absolutely did not have to be a doctor or a virologist to realize from the get-go that, you know, almost all the measures they were, they were foisting on people were at best doing little or nothing. And at worst were even counterproductive. Um, but an early canary in the coal mine uh, anecdote for me was the case of, uh, I forget where exactly it was. It was somewhere in California um, where, you know, they shut down the beaches, which they even did in Florida for a little while. And that, that to me was just always like one of the dumbest, like, what are you doing? This makes no sense. But um, in California, there was an instance where, you know, the beach is abandoned because it's been shut down and somehow one lone surfer, jump the fence or whatever and he's just out there surfing there's like literally not another human being within a mile of him until the cops show up um yeah. so he if nothing else he's socially distancing distancing like a champ you know and yeah. he's out there riding waves all by himself whatever and then oh we got to make an example of him some covid karen or whoever must have seen him and, and called the cops or maybe a cop you know happened to see him out there or whatever mm-hmm. and so like yeah here come the cops in a boat to grab this guy like oh now you're pulling him into your vicinity now now if he has the virus he's spreading it instead of just only spreading it to dolphins or whatever um but but that to me was an instance of like oh this has nothing to do with science this has nothing to do with rationally trying to mitigate a problem this is um this is an ideology you know this is like a this is like a, a cult absolutely uh, and, and justify like, totalitarianism yeah, absolutely. And like, it's telling that they, at least up here in Canada, I don't know what the preparedness plans were for the CDC and stuff, but up here for Health Canada, they completely abandoned all the pre, all the pandemic plans they had in place prior to COVID. They completely abandoned in, in a almost seemingly mass hysteria thing where the main objective of our plan before this even happened was if there was some sort of deadly outbreak, it would be people would relatively social distance and you would protect the vulnerable people and you would just shut down large events. Everything else was supposed to function as normal. And for whatever reason, and I think I have an idea, they completely negated every plan they had in favor of the scientism. And I think the scientism was largely driven at the very beginning by this, the fear mongering that guys like Neil Ferguson did not Neil Ferguson, the, the historian, Neil Ferguson the uh, what what is he? he uh, he's an epidemiological uh, yeah in the UK yeah you know him okay so he made that that famous uh, study at the beginning that said you know there would be literally millions and millions of, of corpses in England if they didn't do something drastic and that scared the hell like you said we're in a technocratic world it scared the hell out of all the the Parliament in in Britain where to the point where they abandoned their uh, initial. Uh, herd immunity strategy that Boris was going to go with. I remember watching this specifically because uh, Sky News, which is out of there, was a free channel on YouTube. And I was watching that at the at the beginning of the pandemic. And they they turned on a dime once that thing got released by Neil Ferguson, where Boris kind of just, he went along with every, every scientism plot. And it's sad that we kind of copied the Chinese on this. They were the ones who took the totalitarian approach and that's what everyone copied. Yeah, in the U.S. case, and I, I forget all of the details, but um, there have been some people who've done some good work on this. 
already uh the yeah we also had as like our default you know setting for dealing with pandemics and epidemics at least since world war ii if not you know since the 1920s or 30s what basically would be the equivalent of targeted protection um which which was what was followed in like previous you know bad flu outbreak like the hong kong flu and whatever which were nasty and did kill a lot of people but you know none of this like we have to shut down every aspect of civilization and um in the u.s case it was actually during the george w bush administration your your favorite president again (laughs) where where all of those chain all of those um you know contingency plans and everything were replaced with much more draconian draconian lockdown okay you know, ideas. And I, I forget, I, I think Jeffrey Tucker has done some good work exposing some of this um, that I forget all the exact motivations and conflicts of interest that were behind it, but that basically there was like this one faction of the public health establishment that was locked onto this idea of draconian lockdowns. And so they kind of were able to kind of play the game of special interest bureaucratic politics to get the old contingency plans that were much more reasonable replaced with these, you know, more extreme ones. And they're, um, I, I forget, I, th- I can't remember if um, it was B- Big Pharma and or Bill Gates actually mm-hmm. had some kind of a supporting role in getting that done, if, if I remember correctly. An outsized but, role, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could be mistaken about that. But yeah, so. Well, that so, leads yeah. perfectly into the final third of the, of the pandemic thing that could be considered democide. And again, I don't want to possibly uh risk your youtube channel um hotep jesus calls them the vacations so we'll talk about the vacations a little bit uh yes this was as uh rummel notes that uh scientific experiments on humans can be considered democide and Mm -hmm. we do know that they did not finish all the phases of the trials for these vacations uh they coerced you with your job with your livelihoods with your ability to travel freely uh to take these things and from what i've gathered uh going on the work of like alex berenson and uh and i guess uh who else would be involved in this like i guess dr malone to some degree and dr mccullough these do seem to be the most deadly vacations that have ever existed in the history of vacations so they're worse than a griswold vacation yeah (laughs) Nice, nice. Um, So if, again, we get back to a similar thing as the lockdowns, where if they knew a certain amount of death by vacation was going to be the result, but still pushed it ahead anyways, uh, they are liable for that. Uh, And that doesn't, I guess they could kind of argue that they were trying to do it for the greater good. More vacations would save more lives. But Again, if you're if you if you're the power, you make this happen, you skip steps to get there, you take the responsibility for when things happen. And these these aren't just a few broken eggs. These are real people. And just like the little girl in Schindler's list, just like you were saying about the the girl in Vietnam, the the the, the napalm girl, these are real people. And you again, even more disgusting, these people's voices were intentionally censored from social media, from having their stories shared because of vacation hesitancy. Yeah. So they, they, again, why you go to such lengths to cover up something that should be uh, openly uh, embraced by everyone because of how amazing they are 
speaks volumes to me about what it really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People, you know, the first high profile one I remember, um, but lots of ordinary people and even some other famous ones as well. But the first high profile one I remember was actually Eric Clapton. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, all, all you had to do was all these people were doing were, were telling their individual stories. They were telling their lived experience and isn't lived experience really important. Well, it only is as long as you're saying what the regime wants you to say. And if your lived experience uh, contradicts their narrative, then fuck your lived experience. You're an evil person. And um, you're probably, uh, I don't know what, but Trump loving Putin loving uh, Nazi or something along those lines. And again, this dovetails nicely into the entire message of this whole episode is that they didn't want to, they had to, mm-hmm. you, you must go along with the end progressive utopian goal or else you are a problem. And don't, I don't doubt. I, I'm not saying you would say this, but I would say this. If they had it at their disposal, they absolutely would have made things exponentially worse for people that dissented during the COVID regime. If they could have the same yeah. way that the Chinese doctors who initially reported the virus in China were dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would argue that um, in most political systems, perhaps all that the people who rise to the top, whether on the more kind of bureaucratic side of things or in the more political, like elective office side of things, you know, um, you look at the skills it takes to rise to the top of institutions like that. And it's essentially a description of a psychopath. Yep. Um, you know, it's almost a hundred percent correlation or, or, or congruity. And so, you know, I would argue in pretty much every political system, most of the time with the occasional rare fluke, the people that rise the highest are tend to be the most, you know, psychopathic. And so in my mind, what, what, you know, makes living under the, the Biden regime, you know, relatively more tolerable than living under a more authoritarian regime is not the inherent benevolence of Biden and the people around him who are really running things. It's the fact that um, there's, there's a combination of sort of institutional constitutional things on one hand, and then sort Mm -hmm. of like popular attitudes amongst at least a portion of the people on the other that restrain what they can get away with. And so it's, it's not that Joe Biden is necessarily a nicer guy than Putin or than Kim Jong-un or whoever, Um, you know, if he was in one of those countries with that system and that culture, he'd be probably just as bad, if not worse, who knows? Yeah. And Um, like, like Michael Malice kept saying during the, the pandemic, like, like, We've shown some very nefarious people the lengths to which we're willing to submit to power after the pandemic. And to me, again, this is why democide is so important because of that, mixed with the idea that the empire is collapsing, mixed with the centralized power. You all and these potential, things can, potential World War Three igniting too. There's that. that. Too. And war is always a great excuse to to clamp down. Uh, all these things mixed together, and if they happen to have the unfortunate. Uh, happenstance of, of 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 occurring in in tandem with one another we're 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 in for some dark times so we need to really understand this connection that rummel brings up between power and death because it's important to know and it's important to stop before it happens yeah yeah absolutely it's you know it's dark unsettling things to think about um but 
you know, more people have to think about these things and be aware, not that they're definitely going to happen, but things mm. at least potentially could uh, get much worse. And that, you know, we need, we need more uh, vigilant people willing to uh, express dissent and, um, you know, try and wake up as many uh, of, of the currently not fully red pilled people. That's uh, why CJ, I would, I would really, as a, as a closing thought here, I would really implore your listeners to at least look up some basic things on democide on the university of Hawaii website. But more importantly, if you encounter anything that even could be tangentially related to democide, throw it at it. So at bare minimum, that term is being circulated more widely and that more people even hear it being said. Just get it out there, throw it at the wall and make sure that people know it exists because it's very important and valuable. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I would definitely second that. So um, before we get out of here, turn the floor over to you for a moment to um, plug away um, any any of your, your previous uh, episodes and series you've done that you want to mention and um, anything you've got in the works that may be uh, uh, soon to be coming attractions. Sure. So uh, I guess first I direct people to my podcast available on all platforms, Smoke Filled Rooms. Uh, second, if you wanted to hit up my website, it's smokefilledrooms.net. And uh, on top of that, I guess I would direct everyone to, I've done two big mini series that I'd like to tell people about. The first one is my Nuremberg trial series. It's a seven part look at the totality of everything. It's like a documentary kind of uh, presentation of the trials. And then uh, my coverage, my five-part miniseries on the potential murder of Marilyn Monroe by the Kennedy brothers. I look at that conspiracy theory, which I openly call a conspiracy theory, by the way. I'm just looking at it as if I was a prosecutorial uh, lawyer trying to pin it on the Kennedys. This is how I would do it. Uh, in terms of stuff coming up, uh, I'm looking, I'm, I'm right now I'm in, uh, I'm developing a miniseries on the trial of Socrates and also uh, the totality of uh, Adolf Eichmann and all of his crimes. So those will be miniseries that will be released in the next couple of months. And uh, that's about it, man. Awesome. Well, um, thanks for spending so much time uh, chatting with me today. It's been great. And I'm sure uh, my listeners are going to dig this conversation and uh, they should check out your podcast because I think listeners to my show would definitely dig your show as well. No, I, I thank you again, CJ. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. And once again, I want to thank Greg for his time and for a great conversation. And I want to recommend that you check out his show, maybe starting with the episode on democide that sparked this conversation, but then check out his other episodes as well. He's covered a lot of interesting topics on his show so far. And lastly, I'll just end once more with a call to action. Please, I could use all the help I could get right now keeping things afloat. So please consider chipping into the Indiegogo campaign, a one-time payment, or signing up as a monthly contributor to my work via Patreon or Subscribestar. And if you're already a Patreon or Subscribestar supporter, please consider upping your level of contribution to get additional benefits. Among other things, you can get bonus DHP episodes not available to the public, ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes, access to vintage DHP episodes, which are the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available on the public podcast feed, 
And you can also get access to various other perks, including live streams with me where you can even ask me questions and get all kinds of, you know, updates and inside baseball and whatever on what I'm working on. And, you know, you can ask me random history questions, that sort of stuff. And in addition to that, if you chip in 50 bucks a month or more via Patreon or Subscribestar, you are eligible to participate in the Dangerous History Podcast Book Club, which convenes monthly over Zoom, and we typically alternate fiction and nonfiction books that we read and discuss. So anyway, thanks for listening. I've been doing a lot of speeches lately, you know, at events and things, and I'm turning those into podcast episodes. But part of the reason why you haven't heard a lot of new episodes from me lately is that it seems like just about every other week or so I've been traveling somewhere to go give a talk and, you know, the traveling to and from uh, eats up my time and resources, you know, energy and so forth. And also obviously preparing my talk, you know, putting together my notes and my research or whatever. You know, I've enjoyed all of my talks and I'd love to do more of them going forward, but just letting you know so that you understand, you know, why there haven't been a ton of new DHP episodes coming out over the last few weeks. So anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll consider supporting my work at the DHP or perhaps even upping your level of support if you're already a supporter. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.